I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. You're going to want to stick around for today's episode, we have a great show today. Some of you may recall in episodes 133 and 134, our guest, uh, Carol, who shared her dreadful Bigfoot experiences. Carol's ongoing activity continues to this day at her home. She also encountered Bigfoot while camping in her early teens. You don't want to miss this. Tom, would you like to take it away? Yeah, absolutely. And first thing I want to say is, uh, welcome back, Carol. And uh, and I also want to say to our listeners out there, thank you, folks. You guys are sending in some excellent questions and if you like the show, uh, you just you can uh, click the like and subscribe. And if you want to support the show, there's a link for Patreon in the description. So I'm going to jump in. <clears throat> Carol, mm-hmm. you and I talked a couple days ago, and there's two things that I want to kind of hear from you. Actually, anything for that matter. But you've got ongoing activity, and we want to hear about that. And then you have a story that you have not shared with us. I don't know if you've shared it with anybody. When you were camping as a little girl, um, I, th- I believe you said you're in your early teens, and you had an encounter with one of these things. So I'm going to hand the mic off to you, and why don't we start off with your early camping experience where you encountered one of these and then I'd like you to fill us in and give us an update. What's uh, what's currently, what's what's the ongoing status with these things at your property? Okay. Okay. It, it's uh, good to be back. And I want to say hi to you and and uh, to, to Will. And uh, I wanted to um, tell you, before I get started, I wanted to tell you that I listened to the program with that you had with Forrest, and I enjoyed it very much. And uh, I feel for her very much when she talks about living alone and and uh, knowing, you know, no doubt that these things are around. I can really, I really respect her, and I really feel for her as well. So anybody in that position, that's exactly why I'm telling what I'm telling. I'm going to share it because it's something that's in my family history. It didn't just happen to me. Um, I know what it feels like to be kind of uh, ostracized and to be kind of um, marginalized about, uh, yeah, well, you know, Carol sees things. (laughs) I know how that feels and I know what it is to have uh, like PTSD sort of symptoms from something like this happening, and then the the downright 
uh, gall of going through life and having most people not believe you and just, you know, keeping it to yourself. And yet you could never completely divorce that from yourself. It's part of you from then on. Uh, believe me, I've tried. I think I deal with it um, better than I thought possible. I really do. I depend on my faith. Um, I think about this, but it's not something that uh, controls my thoughts and um, it's not something that um, I focus on constantly because if I did, I wouldn't I wouldn't have a life. Of course, when I'm living out in the country at this moment, I'm uh, not out there alone. So um, I'll go ahead and get into it. Um, I got to thinking about it whenever uh, my mother and father uh, liked to take us down, my brother and I, down to the uh, de Terre, and it was an area that had been a settlement at one time in Missouri along the de Terre um, River, and it was called Fairfield. So maybe some of the listeners know the area. If you don't, if you don't realize where Fairfield was, it's pretty much now underwater because the Corps of Engineers um, did the work that took place to create the Lake of the Ozarks, Truman Lake um, area near Warsaw. So I realize when I say Truman Lakes, there it's a series of lakes. I can't pretend to know all of them because the days that I went when I was a child, that was before the flooding and before the lakes. And when I was a child, it was a constant topic among the farmers about uh, who had moved out recently, who was left there, and uh, what they were going to do with their farmland, how they were going to make a living, and where they were going to move to. It was always something that my dad spoke with uh, the farmers about when whenever we went down. Now, my dad was not a small guy. He was 6'2", but he was also, uh, he did a lot of physical work. He, he did uh, what they called a job called a beef lugger where his job was to, uh, they would swing a hook down to him in the packing house, and his job was to lift up a side of beef and put it up on the hook. So he was a strong man. Um, so that'll give you an idea of, of his size. Well, we had gone down there at points. We would go stay for two weeks straight. And other times we would go down and break it up into two one-week stays. And so we would usually be there, be there in June. But then there were times that we would go back in uh, the fall, for example. I was a kid, so I just can't remember uh, every year how we broke that up. There were a few times we stayed three weeks at a stretch. But it was because my dad had seniority, so forth. Okay. So just to get into this, I believe this would be uh, considered south of uh, Warsaw, Missouri, which is still there. It's largely unchanged from when I was a kid. A uh, few more businesses and so forth, but I mean, it's 
it's still where it's still where it was. Still got their supermarket and stuff. We used to shop in when we went down there. Um, I can't remember exactly um, what the detour was, but they had taken a bridge out down there. And the year before, we hadn't been there. We instead had taken a vacation to go to the Smoky Mountains, and that was a thrill. And basically, my takeaway from there is they had a whole lot of bears. uh, (laughs) On vacation, we saw a whole lot of bears and people behaving badly. Not bears behaving badly. The bears were doing what they were being uh what came naturally and people were you know feeding them and we even saw someone set a small toddler on the back of one of the bears briefly while they were feeding the bear and we saw all of that and of course we were absolutely stunned that it had gotten out of hand to that point um We had my grandparents with us, and I can remember my dad saw those bears everywhere and all the people, and my dad just told me, you're not leaving the camp. You're not hardly going to leave the camper if I have anything to say about it, and don't ask me why. So the rest of the vacation, that's pretty much what I got to see was the inside of the camper up, you know, on the upper bunk because uh, I got very uh, well-versed on what the wallpaper looked like because that's where I stayed. Just too many bears out. So I've seen bears. Uh, what I saw at Pomme de Terre was not a bear. So we, we took our detour and I've been thinking about this, and it it dawned on me that I wonder if one of these creatures is not what my dad saw. We stopped by, uh, there was a little country uh, church building, country slash school. They had built it as a school, and then on the weekend they used it for a church, and of course uh, they they still had the... um, well, they had had some of the older boys carry wood. They heated it with wood. They they had to go dip their water and from the creek and all of this. And that was in this Fairfield area. And when we got down there, I can remember making a pit stop by there to stop. And we had everything with us to make sandwiches and, and so forth. We were pulling uh, our Chaot Forester camper with us. And we had... Uh, a Ford truck with a shell on the back. So we had plenty of room to carry our stuff with us. And we also had, my dad liked to have a John boat strapped on the top of the uh, camper. And he had built racks and uh, we usually had a motorcycle or a mini bike or two, three, even four of those with us, depending on who, how many people went with us and stuff. This particular trip, it was just my mom, my dad, and I. My brother was older, and he was probably out, as he said, out chasing chicks somewhere back at home. He, he had a job already and, and so forth. So anyway, we stopped at this little school, and somebody had been in the school and had uh, knocked the door off the hinges and stuff like that. It looked like general general vandalism. And so we uh, pulled over to the side in the shade, and we were eating and had gotten our camp chairs out. 
and we're up under the trees and we're eating. And my dad kept looking around and I kept thinking, what's, what's he looking at over there? And he starts whispering to my mother and he says something about there's some guy over there. And we're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, people who came down to camp, they didn't normally camp at this, you know, at this schoolhouse. Uh, the the locals kept it up because they still like to have uh, meetings in it and used it from time to time, historical events and stuff like that. They had kept it in pretty good shape, so it was a surprise to see the door off of it. Of course, there could have been somebody there. I mean, that's possible. But my dad literally set his food down and said something to my mother and took off running into the trees. He was literally going to chase down whoever this was. And he never did. He never was able to catch the person. He said there was a very, very big man dressed in something dark watching us from the trees. But this person totally skunked him. He came back and just, you know, could never figure out who this person was, one person out there. We never saw any vehicles. There weren't any vehicles along the road or anywhere else. So that was one of the things that kind of led up to this. We ended up uh, going back into the place that we usually can't. And I know that we had talked to a man that camped there all the time. He came after after we began camping there. He was not as an old a timer about going down there as we were, and there were certainly other people that took their turns camping in primitive. I mean, there there were no uh, cement pads or electricity or anything like that. You just, you just brought your stuff and set up camp. This man's name was Reed Wilson. And Reed was a likable old fellow, and uh, he liked to fish and camp and so forth. His wife didn't care for it at all. So he would leave home for weeks at a time and and camp in his little uh, camper shell, and people got to know him. We kind of, my dad would make sure that he kind of knew who was hanging around at the time and, and so forth, and it just made it just made sense. The farmers were the same way. They would drive through there to get out from where they lived at. And as they passed by, you know, they would kind of take note of who was being foolish and rowdy and who was who were, you know, good, safe people to have in the area and not not poaching and not shooting from the road and, you know, just behaving nicely. Then this was Mr. Wilson. He was very uh nice and he was there basically to uh catch his fish and uh cook them up i don't know exactly how he preserved them but he he was getting fish for the year and then he'd go back home to his wife well we had seen him shortly before this and he had told us that he was terrified and we said uh, about what And my dad said, is somebody giving you trouble? You know, because we wanted to know it. If there was someone down there that was uh, messing with people, you know, we we had the right to know it. And he said, no, I I can't hardly tell it. And he got around to telling uh, some of us uh, kids that were together that we 
teenagers that were at the various camps, we knew each other. And he told us to be careful and that something had been coming into camp. And we said, coming into camp? He said to get the fish guts and stuff that I have. And I said, well, you know to keep that stuff away from your camp, don't you? And he goes, oh, yeah, pointed way off into the cane over by the, uh, you know, the the little pomodotere on the bank back in the trees. And he says, you know, I'll back off in that way. I carry it back in there and I bury it. He said, but something come along behind me and it's got big, big hands. And we were all stumped. He said, so you all be careful. He said, this thing comes out at night and it shakes my camper and it roars. And we thought, hmm, okay, what could that possibly be? It just didn't make sense. Any of us, you know, none of us had ever seen bear down there. And we'd talk to the farmers and they didn't speak of seeing bear. And so we just thought, well, you know. We respected the man, so we didn't laugh about it, but it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, my folks, the time that I was with them alone, and there there was no one else camping down there except for after we got pulled in, a couple of men came in with tents, and I believe, if I remember right, they came in on motorcycles, and they parked at the first campsite, whereas we had past those campsites um we came in from the south end i believe and we wanted to park we wanted to park further in on the curve so we passed several spots and um we like to be there and that was mr wilson's place well mr wilson wasn't there so we pulled right in my dad backed in and my dad was busy getting a boat uh, loosed and uh, I helped him get it into the uh, shallows and tie it up there and he had a motorcycle with him we had two dogs with us it, I'll tell you that because it figures in later we had a little dachshund that was full of vinegar and then we had a little black puppy that I was uh, that I had at the time and the puppy was about half grown little uh, poodle terrier mix puppy and so mom and I stayed in camp and my father got on a motorcycle and he said he was going to check out those other people that that came in after we did that parked closer to the entry and so he took off south and there we are and we're in our usual spot and we're just as happy as two ducks in a in a puddle you know we decided to get supper made up and and all of that and my dad had already uh he dug a pit he took a sapling tree he he cut the limbs off of it and he planted that into the ground and you know stomped the dirt in around it and he put the uh coleman lantern up on that and when he put the coleman lantern up i watched him hang it and the bottom of the lantern was up above his head. I mean, he, he pulled it over and, you know, he put the, hung the bale on something and lifted it, lit it, lifted it up there because he had to lift it up there to get it up there. Uh, he took off, and when he went, the, the dachshund went with him. And we just figured the dachshund would stay with him. Okay, 
So my dad had taken the keys with him when he left. So we're there. We've got the 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 uh, chaos drop down, and the truck is there. And we started getting in and out of the of the chaos, and we had the food ready. Well, my dad lingered, so we went ahead and ate without him. And uh, my mom saved the food for a little while. We had a camp stove and and all of that directly in front of the door of the of the uh, chaos. And so it began to get dark, and we went out and we picked up uh, wood. So we built a fire, and we decided the fire. Well, the fire was back behind the chaos, just to kind of give you an idea. So the water was the water was uh, further. It was the water I believe was north of us. Then we had our fire on the bank. And then the chaos, and then the pickup, and then the front end of the pickup was right along the road, if that makes any sense. So my dad kept staying, and, and later I found out that he got up there and got to talking with these fellows, and they were asking questions about the fishing and stuff like that. And they gave my dad a beer or two, and my dad usually didn't drink but my dad was you know on vacation he had a couple of beers well the dog came walking back pretty slowly so gets dark mom and i began to hear these weird noises i told her i said boy there's a lot of raccoons out there tonight or something and she said well i keep hearing sounds i can't quite fit together what i'm hearing and it got darker now this was probably at the end of summer, because I'll tell you how I'm thinking that is because it was muggy. It was beginning to cool off. We were in for some rain. They had talked about the weather changing. And uh, my dad had talked about maybe parking somewhere else in case the ground got soft, but we went ahead and stayed. And they said that, um, Let's see, how was it? Hang on. Okay, so the camp was pretty much surrounded by cane. And the cane had grown up tall enough to be way past my head. A grown man would be hidden in the cane. The cane was that tall. And so there were little paths going back into the cane where various people had gone and disposed of their fish guts and uh, the like of that. But generally, you're talking a wall of cane. So my mom and I were used to sitting out like that at night, and I put my back up to the back window on the chaos. So I was between the chaos and the fire, and I had the little black puppy in the box at my feet. And he was making some noise and so forth, and I was trying to get him to settle down. We had to bring him on vacation. I didn't have anybody else to watch him. So my mother turned her back toward the cane. And she was up and down. We had put pretty much everything away that, because my dad, it was obvious dad wasn't going to make it back, uh, you know, anytime soon. So she had started putting things back in the icebox. Well, we lit the lantern so we would have some light. 
and we sat there very quietly. There began to be the most unsettling noises coming from the cane. And it sounded like more than one source. And the sound was drawing closer. And we could hear some sounds echoing on the water. We were kind of mystified. My mom turned to me and she said, you know, I have heard everything that lives in Missouri. And I can't quite place that. It was kind of going. Like this. And there would be silence between there. And I told her, I said, the frogs quit singing. And then. Go like this. And then some fake owl calls, very deep. Didn't sound like a normal owl. And my mom would turn to me and she would say, well, now what kind of a sound is that? She said, that sounds like a goose. Geese don't, you know, they're not normally out here and they're normally not, you know, they do fly at night, but good grief, what's the sound? And then it sounded like... um, couple of things getting in a fight and it was ear shattering so we were both thinking that we ought to go in and uh constantly talking back and forth about what kind of a sound is that what kind of a sound is that a fox no that's no it's not no it's not it's not anything i've ever heard and i can't express to you just in mere language the creepy feeling we started having and we were not like that i mean we were used to staying out on the creek bank it was my second home but this was creepy it was getting very creepy and in fact we both likened it to someone who was mentally ill because the sounds all of a sudden stepped up, they got it got to be a constant flow of sounds, and one sound after another. At, at times, it sounded like a human voice trying to speak, and at another time, it sounded like a gorilla, and it would go off into a low roar like an African lion, and we both stood up to leave and I was facing the cane and mom was facing me and her back was to the cane and I was watching the cane as I saw this enormous creature covered in black hair step out of the cane by parting it with its hands It was upright on two legs, like a person, and it had arms and hands, but very long arms, and it had very a very very muscular build. It was um, a little bit of just to compare. 
it was a little bit stockier than what I see at my property now. It was built a little different. The ones that I see are generally built, they're taller, and they're built more like a basketball player. This that we saw, I didn't see any breasts. I saw a lot of hair. It was black, and it had it stepped out of the cane and just braced itself and stood there. It um, looked to me like it had like it was chewing something. I could plainly see its teeth. It its mouth was moving. I'm not aware. I can't remember if it was making a, a sound with its you know, if it was making a vowels with its mouth or not, but it was a popping, chewing sort of thing. And my mother saw my face and turned to glance over her shoulder and immediately grabbed me. I bent down and grabbed the puppy out of the box and she literally shoved me uh, backward uh, so that we could flee up the backside of the camper and go past the chaos and past the camper on the back of the truck, and I couldn't move. I look back at it now, and I have never been more terrified than that moment. I had never been that terrified up to that time. As I say, I was 13 or 14, so this was in like 1974. Uh, I, I, my knees were jello. I hung on to the dog by the collar. I don't know how I even managed to do that. My mother was not as tall as I am, but she managed to kick in and physically half dragging, half shoving me, got me up to the, the, the pickup cab. She threw the driver's side door open. She shoved me in and I was like raw liver. I couldn't make my muscles contract and I couldn't, I couldn't work with her and I knew I couldn't work with her and I wanted to work with her, but I couldn't make my body respond. I put my upper half of my body in the seat or she did, whichever way you want to say it. And I bent at the hips and I just laid there. And in my mind, I was thinking, what is the thing, and can it come back around? Yes, it can. Can it get mom before she can get in? Yes, it can. And she was shoving on my lower body, and I finally kicked in and began to pull myself with my elbows. And I got in enough that she hopped in, and she shut the door. And I reached up, and I locked my door, and she locked hers. And she said, you still got the dog? And I said, he's in the floorboard. And I began to shake. And we sat there, both of us, and shook. And I kept saying, what was that? What was that? Now, part of it, when she was shoving me back, one of the details that I did not say is when she was shoving me back already um, to try to push me out of the area, I saw it turn its head toward the food table while it was popping and gnashing its teeth. And there was kind of a, of a, 
a loud snapping kind of a sound that seemed to come out of my own head. And it didn't just turn its head on a neck because it didn't look like it even really had a neck, but it was like the upper body was kind of fused to the head. When it turned its head to look at the table, it actually rotated at the hip and kind of twisted the body to glance. I mean, it didn't seem to be concerned about us. It, it didn't uh, It didn't lunge at us or roar at us. It, it, uh, I know the height because I know it was way bigger than my father because I had just seen my father standing under that lamp pole and put the pole up there. And my father looked like... Uh, a third grader compared to this thing. So I had that as a scale. I can't say exactly how tall it was, but it was taller, way taller than my father. In fact, when it came out, it ducked its head a little bit to keep from hitting its face on the lamp, the the lamp, the Coleman lantern. Uh, so it, it would have hit its face on the lamp if it hadn't been over a little bit from there so in other words i got a, i got a pretty good look at the details on it i saw how muscular it was it looked to me like if you had a uh mr universe built kind of a person only the arms were much longer and the neck was not visible like you'd think it was black, the night was dark, and the lamp was kind of behind behind upper and behind, kind of behind the back of its head almost. When it stepped out, it was like one movement and then stopped moving. As I said, when we took off to get into the truck, it didn't seem that rattled. It just seemed like any other day to that thing, and it... It, uh, I expected it to chase us to the truck. I was sure it was right on top of us, and it, it didn't. It didn't. We got into the truck, and I was saying to my mother when I finally got my senses a little bit, I was saying to her, we can drive away. We can just, you've got, we can just drive away. And she, she put her hand on my leg, and she patted me, and she said, no, honey, we can't, we can't leave. Your dad has the keys. So there we sat in the truck with several mosquitoes, listening to the mosquitoes buzz and not knowing what was outside. She kept telling me, shh, be quiet. When I would try to speak, she would say, shh, just be quiet. Just lay low and sit here and your dad will be back. And she was listening to see if it maybe had gone into the camper. And, of course, if it had gone into the camper, we would know it because it was still hitched. And we would have known it if it would have stepped in there the size that it was. I don't know if it could have gotten into the door or attempted to have gotten in the door of the camper. But she didn't actually have it completely closed and locked up because she had been in and out carrying her food back and forth. And she was trying to remember if she left the door standing open or not. But if it had stepped in there, it would have rocked the camper. It would have rocked the truck. We would have felt it. And it didn't get in there. So after a while, I turned my face 
out my, I was on the passenger side and I looked out and there was a huge, huge double trunk tree right there. Um, I had played on that tree many times and I looked between the double trunks down low and I saw the eyes of this thing and they had an orangish glint to the eyes and it had the glint to the eyes when it stepped out you know behind my mother from the from that um, patch of tall tall cane uh and i to this day don't know if it was the reflection from the campfire but when it popped its head up between the trees uh the tree bark was dark the night was dark its face was dark i couldn't really see fine detail in the face but i could see the outline and i could see the head was very pointed and i could see these two far apart big eyes and the only thing that i could compare it to when we talked about it when i was a young person was it looked like two bicycle reflectors because they were so round and they looked to be about the size of a small bicycle, not a real small one, but uh, the standard bicycle reflectors that we kids all had on our bikes at the time. This is what it looked like to me. It had that orange-red cast to it. So I don't see how that the light from the campfire could have illuminated, illuminated it being behind there. So it had to have gone behind the table back into the brush and come out. Uh, behind the two trees. So I was on one side of the two tree on the double trunk tree and it was on the opposite side. So it was actually about seven feet from me. And I just freaked out. I sat there and I cried and I tried to do it silently. And, you know, I would shake and my shoulders would jerk up in the air and I would try to get a breath and be quiet doing it. And my mom was trying to hold my hand and we sat there for what seemed like an eternity. And then she looked out. She kind of raised up and she looked out and she said, Carol, I don't see those eyes anymore. And I said, do you think it left? And she said, well, honey, I don't know what in God's green earth we just saw. But I think it might have moved on. We never did hear it mess with the camp stove, you know, throw things around and all of that. Well, my dad came riding back, um, and he'd been missing his dog. So he pulls up, and he says, oh, you know, there, what are you girls doing sitting in the truck for? And, oh, there's the dog. And the dog had laid down in front of the truck, and he just, while the thing was behind the tree, my mother noticed that he, it, the dog just laid there and would not offer up a bark. He he laid there like he was shot. He laid on his belly, and he never moved a muscle while this was going on. I was too freaked out to really notice it. My mother called my attention to it and said, the dog is here, but your father's not. So I guess the dog had decided to come back to camp without him. Well, when my dad comes back, he tells my mom, roll the window down, and, and she's so terrified she can't hardly function, but... She finally, she, she cranks the window down and she goes, Bill, you've got to get in here. And he said, what's the matter? And she said, well, turn off the motorcycle. I can't hear what you're saying. So he turns the motorcycle off and she says, I'm telling you, something, something is out there. 
and you're out there with it, and you need to get inside. And they had their conversation about it, and she tried to describe it, and he just wouldn't have it. He just couldn't imagine what he was trying to make sense out of it. And he said, well, is it a bear? And both of us said no. And he said, why are you so sure? And I said, Daddy, when it turned its face and body toward the little table to look at the at the food uh, table, it didn't have a muzzle on it. That was the thing that freaked me out the most. Uh, it had a, a, a side view like a human. And there wasn't a muzzle sticking out. I didn't see ears sticking up. I didn't see ears laying flat. I saw no ears. I saw a hairy bullet-shaped head with these red eyes and the teeth going all the time. Big, big, wide mouth. And so my dad ended up picking me up and carrying me back to the camper and putting me inside. And he told her, he said, she just needs a good night's rest. We've had a long day and both of you just need a good night's rest. And my mother said, I don't think it's safe to stay here. And he said, well, if something wanted you, it would have had you. And she said, yeah, but think about what the kids said that Reed Wilson said that he saw. And dad said, well, we don't know about that old man. He probably, he probably had him a fifth of whiskey. You don't know what he saw. And they went back and forth like this. And I, my only request was take me away from here. But my dad was saying, look, we're going to have weather and we're okay where we're at. We're pretty level and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to drop the camper, you know, and we're going to, we're going to go ahead. We drove all this way to come down here by gosh, and we're going to stay here. I don't know what you girls think you saw, but I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there is a bear out here. And we're like, no, no, it's not a bear. When we finally got settled in, I was, uh, sleeping in the chaos with my face facing toward, I was the closest to where we saw the thing come out of the cane, which really unnerved me. I've got glass, uh, you know, jealousy windows at my head and alongside the length of my body. And um, I've got my head pointed at the back of the camper and my mother shares the bed with me because my dad was such a big guy and he was kind of a fitful sleeper. Um, he had his own bed toward the front of the, of the camper. He, he took up the whole thing pretty much. So mom and I are sharing a little bed and I lay there and, and shook until I just finally was worn out and I fell asleep. I woke up during the night and I could hear something breathing and it was hot, kind of muggy like, and so we had the windows cracked. And I smelled this bad odor, and I poked my mom with my elbow, and I said, Mom. And she didn't answer, and I said, Mom. And she said, Shh, listen. And I said, I am listening. That thing is here. And she said, No, no, you know, calm down. And I said, I smell it. And it put its face up to the glass and put its fingers in there. And it was running its fingers like it was trying to figure out what we had, what kind of a system we had. It was rubbing its fingers like here its nails rubbing across the the screens. And so uh, that really, 
I mean, I, I if I could have turned the wrong side out and died, I would have done it. And uh, both of the dogs didn't say anything. Both of them were the kind that would woof woof at anything. And both of the dogs were just totally silent, like under the bed. It went around to the top of my head where the window was at the end of the camper. And my mother grabbed me by the arm and squeezed it real tight to keep quiet, you know, in case I said something. And she just wanted me to be completely quiet. And it stood there and it said, go like that. And every time it made a noise, she would squeeze my arm. And uh, later I asked her, what did you squeeze? You think you nearly left your fingernail marks in my arm. And she said, I was just scared. (laughs) It went around and it stopped outside of the bathroom window and it played with the little tiny window that was at the top of the bathroom. And it, it was like it was, you could hear it like it was trying to hook. It wasn't open, but you could hear it like catching a nail on the edge of that and trying to figure it out. You could hear it popping. And then it decided to go up toward where my dad was sleeping. My dad, he was sawing logs. He was, he was totally unaffected at this point. So it went up there and it got at the window. He had all of, all the windows cranked out for him and it went up there and it got close to his, to the top of his head. His feet were facing the, the, the door, uh, you know, that side of the, of the camper his head was pointed um like east our heads were pointed pointed north and his was pointed east and this thing paused outside of the window and it was uh it put its uh, body on the trailer somehow and began to shake it and my dad woke up and he he told us later he said uh i said real low you know you want to get your head blown off just keep it up and something went like this, you know, and then we heard the feet patter and feet run off. We heard loud two footed bipedal running that ran off. And so my dad spoke up and said, uh, are, are you girls all right? And mom said, I think that's that same thing. It came back. And I said, Dad, that's it. It came back. It came back. He said, just don't sit up. Lay down. I guess I attempted to sit up and and talk to him. And he said, no, I just want you to lay there and cover yourself up. And and I nearly smothered. We lay there for a long period of time again. And it seemed like every time we got asleep good again, it would come back. Well, it came back. And it went the opposite way around. It started at the back end of the uh, camper where where our heads were and it made some sounds kind of like um uh kind of sounded like um oh 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 kind of like this and of course you know mom and I are grabbing at each other and uh in terror and it started to rock the the trailer from that direction now now the trailer is kind of rocking the back end of it's racing up and it rocked the trailer an an awful lot and then it whacked the end of the trailer um sounded like a hand and um my dad woke up and uh he got a firearm ready 
and he was waiting for it to try the door. And if somebody tried to come in the door, he was just going to play, you know, warn them and then let them have it. And so it went, it, it slid up past me again. And I saw it, it's a uh, shadow passed close to the window as it went. And it was sniffing as it went. It was stopping and sniffing uh, deeply. And when it would exhale, it, it would, um, make a loud burst like a well, it was like uh something with really big lungs or like a horse it made me a, it made me think a lot of a horse uh it would breathe in very slowly and quietly and then it would and clear the nostrils like that but it went up to the door and of course my dad had it locked and it kind of moved the knob a little bit and then it grabbed the knob and it shook it real hard it shook the whole trailer uh, shaking the knob and my dad spoke up again he got kind of sat up he was at the foot where his feet were at and he could see something outside there outside the window and he said I'm giving you a warning you don't mess with someone in the middle of the night unless you want to get plugged and he shouted at it and it took off and you could hear the feet again I fell asleep Thank God I finally fell asleep, and I slept late. They left me alone and let me sleep late and just went about their usual thing when they got up in the morning and, and got breakfast and stuff. But then my dad tells me something when I get up, and his uh, experience went like this. He said, I had to relieve myself in the night. He said, I decided to get out and go walking around camp a little bit. And walk down the road and see if I could see anything or anybody, see some flashlights, see who was coming into camp, who's giving us trouble. And I said, did you take your gun with you? And he said, yeah, I did. He said, and I've never had to do that down here. So he goes walking down the road away. I don't know how much he lingered around camp. I didn't ask. But he said that he headed down, uh, down toward the west toward the uh, point in the road that it was a, a Y in the road. And um, there was a lot of, through the years, there was a lot of strange occurrences around that Y in the road. It went off to uh, kind of like, it was a um, southwest direction. And it went off into really heavily timbered area that used to be farmed and, and the houses there were abandoned. And uh, there was a pecan and an apple grove up in there. And, uh, you know, if you ask me now, I would say that that was a lot of their sustenance because um, on the way up there along the road, there were these huge places where the water would settle and there were always lots of frogs there and uh, creatures would come there to drink and stuff. And then they had the orchard and they had the pecan. We'd gone up there and gotten apples and, and pecans ourselves before and then it curved way back around and headed back um back west again and you ended up coming to the the smallest part of of the little pomade tar if you went all the way up in there there was a low water bridge i'd been up there before that was the spookiest area back there that i can just i mean describe and 
my father's experience was, uh, I didn't mean to get sidetracked there, but my father's experience was toward that Y in the road. And he said that he relieved himself and he saw a pair of red eyes in the road. And it was some distance from him, but it began to grow closer. And he said the, the eyes were about the height of a deer. So he told himself, well, this is a deer. And he said the eyes continued to come closer. And he said he called out to it and it didn't make any difference. And he said all of a sudden the eyes began to rise to a height of a human and then went on up to higher than uh, a man. And he said when he saw those eyes go from very, very low, which he thought it was a deer with its head maybe down nibbling something at the side of the road, and then it's and then the head lifted, and he was convinced still it was a deer, but then the eyes continued on up, and they were the two eyes were uh facing him, you know arranged like a human face instead of having an eye on each side like a horse. this was a a a face like a human eye arrangement or maybe a gorilla eye arrangement, I guess either one you could say, a binocular sort of uh, set. And he said when he saw that, he just about messed himself. And he said he called out to it, and it didn't make a bit of difference. And so he began to back up, and it began to proceed toward him. And he said he called out to it again. And he said, if you understand me, then you'll know I'm serious about this. I've got a loaded weapon. And he said it never did re- it never did change how it acted. And he said he just kept backing up and then uh, got some distance between it and went back to camp, came straight back in the camper and got back in his bed. When I got up that day and after that story and I'd had something to eat, my dad says, okay, now I want you to take me where you saw it. And I was in shock. I said, Daddy, what are, you, what are you saying? He said, I want you to show me where it came out. I want you to show me everything. You got the best look at it, and I want you to show me where it was. And I tried to describe it. I said, it's kind of like uh, uh, take a man and graft on a gorilla on the upper body from the navel up. Graft on a gorilla. That's kind of what it looked like. And, of course, It didn't matter how many times I told him, it just didn't make any sense to him. And so he led me back the way this thing had entered camp through the cane, and I died a thousand deaths. I begged him. I said, please, no, please don't make me do this. And he said, well, how are we ever going to find out what it is if we don't investigate? And I said, but it's, it's, he said, it's daytime. I said, well, you don't know what you're dealing with. So he took me back to the place where Reed Wilson and the others used to put their their fish guts. And sure enough, all of that area had been torn up. I mean, major league, something had torn it up. It looked like with hands, uh, the same work that if a couple good men had uh, some big scoop shovels, you know, nice, uh, deep uh, blade, It was deep, and they had dug it up, whatever, had dug it up, and it looked like it was dug with hands. And then sticking up out of the holes were these big kind of flat sticks, big heavy-duty sticks. And it looked to me like they had 
dug something, somebody had dug something out of those holes. And I asked him, I said, what is that? And he said, well, that's where they throw their fish guts when that's everybody knows to step back in here. And, you know, you want that stuff away from camp and they let the raccoons have it or whatever. And I said, so critters are used to coming back here and getting their vittles. And he said, yeah. He said, people also come back here. He said, some of this work might be where people dug fishing uh, worms or whatever. But the thing with the big handprints and the big giant fingers and uh, all of that, it was, it was a puzzle. And uh, the last thing he said to me on the subject was, I think something had been back there and been digging roots. That was his take. Well, we went ahead and we finished, I think, two days. And toward the evening of the second day, Mom and I both were still trembling. And my dad decided it just wasn't a good idea to stay any longer. And uh, the bad weather had finally arrived, and he hooked everything up. We strapped the boat back in place. He put the motorcycle back on the grill on the front end of the truck where he put it. And... We closed everything up, and away we went. And he couldn't figure out, even weeks later, why we were so shook up. Um, that was the second one I ever saw. The first one that I ever saw was the story I told you about our encounter where it chased our car. That was one in Kansas City. And that's when I was six years old. That was the first one I ever saw. So we did have them visiting in Kansas City. Um, I had a few a few other things happen where, like, they would be caught looking in the picture window of the home that we had when I was a child in Kansas City. I've had about five full-body sightings. And I know that seems like an extreme amount. Um for whatever reason, they don't seem to be afraid of me. I don't know if it's just because I'm a woman and I don't carry weapons. Uh, I don't. I don't have all the answers to it. I just know what I've seen, and I just. I want people to be aware. You know, the days of thinking that you're on your property so you're safe in something like this that there's only one that roams the planet it just can't be um i know you know this but i'm i'm just trying to reason with people who just think it absolutely can't be fine live in that space be comfortable in that space. I wish I could occupy that space with all my heart. But they really exist, and they really are out there. I don't think that they're my little friendly flute playing, uh, you know, magical critter. I don't think that. And I also don't think that every one of them is out to get you because I'll tell you the truth. It's like I was telling a friend the other day. If they were capable of becoming invisible, there wouldn't be a meat locker or a grocery store anywhere around 
because if they were capable, as strong as they are, if they were truly capable of becoming completely invisible, I don't see how there would be humanity left because they can eat and eat and never quench that hunger. There's a lot of mass there, and they are constantly, their, their days and nights are consumed, I'm sure, with getting enough calories. Yeah, I'm sure they, they are. Hey, Carol, quick question. Yeah. Give us an update on what's current, what the current activity is at your place, because that was really interesting. You got some stuff that's ongoing, and um, can you give us... Fill us in on that. Okay. Well, my mother and I left Kansas City, and we bought a place in the country south of Kansas City. And I will not say exactly where. Most people, most most listeners are the salt of the earth. I just don't want someone to get a cockamamie idea, you know. Otherwise, I don't care who knows what, but I'm going to have to protect my privacy that way. However, um, when we moved here, it, we got the property before the year 2000, okay? But we didn't move in there full time at first because my mother still had a job in the city and she commuted back and forth. It was long distance for her. And, uh, you know, she was looking at possibly retiring from there, and um, we were back and forth. We kept our home in Kansas City uh, for years, longer than we really should have, and we were back and forth constantly. Then my mother, my mother's mother uh, developed cancer, and it, it just it took her by inches. It, it was years for her um, to die. Um, she, um, she needed help and between the family members taking turns, staying with her and helping her, my goodness, when someone gets cancer, that's not just, you know, I mean, my goodness, I'll just got to say this. The, the, the thing is the, the busyness you have to be getting treatment. It's just something i mean she was in gamma knife so much so it was it got to the point where my aunt would uh work her job and and try to get her days offset so that she could stay with her and then my mother was doing the same thing and and you know arranging her schedule as much as she could so that somebody was there with her most of the time and she was living in independence at the time so you know my mother had trying to live you know, further south, much further south, it was a very challenging thing. And so for the most part, I stayed down here and, and we got five acres and a trailer. And I stayed here most of the time myself. Well, I was here alone. I began to notice things. And then she would stay on the weekend with me and she would notice things. And we began to have things happen there. Um, uh, we knew what it was. 
not that we could put our finger on it and say, oh, this is and call the Latin name of it, you know, not like that. But we had seen this before. We saw this down at, at uh, on the Palma de Terre. And so we knew that was generally the same type of creature, same thing that chased our 55 Chevy in Kansas City, only albeit a, a very young one. Um, to bring you up to speed, in 2017, my mother had had enough, and so had I. And she said that she, um, well, to be honest with you, she was way, she worked way longer than retirement age. And so they finally told her that, you know, she needed to retire. She was to the point she couldn't keep up her physically demanding job. So in 2017, she purchased a little house in town and um, she never gave it any thought that other than, um, you know, it's about four miles, four and a half away from where she had her trailer home. So I stayed in the trailer home and began to slowly move, sift through her things and slowly move her out and get her into her little house. We got her house in June and got her moved in in July. And immediately we started having things happen at the house. And the house is in town. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I finally lost it. The pressure of all this and of not fully being able to wrap my head around it. And, you know, I, I'm losing my, that's what's happened. I've lost my marbles. My mother would say, well, if you've lost your marbles and I've lost my marbles too. So one day she comes out to pick me up. This was, I would say the end of 2018 the end of summer, 2018, she comes, she drives out to pick me up because I have no vehicle and I'm out there and I'm trying to wrap things up and get the place on the market so we can sell that. So I can move in with her in the city, at least whatever, wherever I ended up at, the goal was to be able to have a visiting nurse or someone for her as she aged because she was, you know, approaching 80. Okay. So um, we started having weird things happen at her house in, in Kansas City. I mean, not Kansas City, but I mean, the same weird things that had happened in Kansas City with the trash and stuff uh, that was happening at the trailer outside of, of this little town was beginning to happen at the little, in the little house in town as well. And I, I told her, I said, you don't suppose that they know where you've gone. And we already had a problem with them urinating on the car. She had gotten herself a new car and was going to be her, you know, her, her, her words. This will be my last car. This should, this should get a new one and it should, it should hold me. Okay. So they urinate on the doors whenever that car was parked at the trailer in the country and it would be high up urinate on the windows and it would run down the, you know, and smell bad and run, run down in, you know, around the gaskets and down into the door. And then it would be, the aim would always be right up above the handle. So it would run down over the handle and down the door and drip off the bottom. I mean, there's quite a volume. 
and usually get both sides. And mom would get up sometimes, you know, because she was back and forth. She wasn't completely happy being alone in the little house. And I wasn't completely happy being alone in the trailer. So sometimes we would be back and forth. I would be helping her settle things and get things um, ready in her house, helping her put down uh, carpeting and just things like that. So, um, wow. Like I said, she pulled up one day to pick me up and it was unearthly hot in the, in the trailer because we had the, the, um, system underneath it. These creatures had torn the skirting off the back of the mobile home and they would get up under it and you could hear it at night. At first, I didn't want to think that it was them. Uh, I didn't know what to think. I figured we had raccoons up under there. Um, But I think what was happening in hindsight, I think that we had a rodent problem out there in the country, and the rodents were in there. And I think that these creatures could hear the rodents and they ended up pulling all of the ductwork out from underneath the mobile home, getting after the rodents. And we would go out there and we would put the skirting back up. We even had a neighbor a couple of times come and help us put our skirting back in. And he would say, how in the heck does this keep happening? And it would be big sections of the skirting. Um, for a while we had metal skirting and I mean, they had just damaged that and just plow right into it on the North end. And that would be right, right beside my mother's bed. And, um, thank goodness we had it tied down real well. We had, um, uh, concrete runners underneath it with, you know, we had it done right. And we had the, the trailer secured down. Uh, just for general, you know, storm purposes and stuff to make it more of a permanent structure. And, I mean, they would slap on the home at night. But the day that she came to pick me up was the last time we both saw one full body. And that was at the end of 2018. And when she came to get me, I told her, I said, honey, it is hotter than blazes inside of here. You know, because I was terrified to open the windows. My friends would come over and say, well, we thought we'd come and just, you know, see if we could help you move something or whatever. And I was so grateful to them. And they would step in and say, oh, this takes your breath away. Why don't you open the windows up? I was terrified to have the windows open. Every time I had the curtains pulled back or had the windows open, especially at night, something would be looking in. And I just, I know that sounds crazy, but both of us had, had been seeing them. We had smelled them. We found tracks. They were getting into the compost. And I told you about all of that. I keep getting off the subject, but I'm telling you what I saw was, un. (laughs) there aren't any words. There aren't any words to describe it except the ugliest biggest red haired looking ape thing I ever saw. I had told mom, go ahead. It's so hot in here. Pull the car up past the driveway. 
Now, this was in the country. I told her, I, you know how hot it is in there, hon. I said, I'm going to bring out a couple of your things, like your big big sewing baskets and stuff like that, and I'm going to load them in the back end. So I said, why don't you pull right up there, past the trash can, and park in the shade, because there are oak trees hanging over the road, and you'll be in the shade up there, And because it's going to take me a little bit to carry this stuff out. So she went up there, and I got a few things loaded, and then... Uh, I went back and I locked up and um, I came back up to get in. I, you know, uh, I came in on the passenger side. So I hopped in with her and I shut the door and she was silent and she just pointed up the road with her finger and didn't say anything. And I looked where she was pointing and there I saw the female Bigfoot that I had seen the face of before red a red uh, coat of hair and it had it had come out of the tree line on my side of the road but it was it was a little distance up the road and and they always cross there and i've noticed that the road kind of undulates you know and that's a good spot for them because you just about visually lose a car in there and they cross there when I've seen them in the road, it's always there where it's a, a visually difficult place to see. Uh, you can watch a car come from a distance. I have for 20 years. Uh, you can see a car coming towards you and uh, down the gravel road because, you know, it's farm fields through there. And the trees mostly are cut back away from the road. And there's a fence on the um, opposite side of the road and on my side of the road. The trees came up a gully, and it was um, brushy, and this thing stepped out onto the edge of the road, and it looked right at us. Classic Bigfoot thing, only this one was really heavy-bodied, and she looked um, pregnant. She had big breasts, Point, kind of a pointed head, but not really seriously pointed, not like the one I saw on the pomme de terre. Uh, but this one, uh, she dropped down onto uh, four legs, and she was bigger than any cow I've ever seen. I have seen cattle up at that distance because the neighbor runs cattle sometimes. You know, I mentioned that it was fenced. The opposite side of the road is fenced. They have, they keep cattle, beef cattle up there. This was bigger than any cow. It crossed the road in about, you know, it's down on all fours, but I would say basically um, two movements. You know, it's moving, moving uh, all four legs. Um, It had kind of a, smooth spider-like crawl to it the arms were longer it it had its arms slightly bent and it stopped right in the center like it took uh, half the road in one motion and then it turned its face right toward us again and just stood there still and then it crossed the road in one more motion very smoothly We both watched in shock as it got to the opposite uh, 
terrace on the opposite side of the road. It stood up in one smooth, clean, flawless motion and just simply stepped over the fence. And this is fence that they keep bulls in. It's no little dinky fence. And it just swung its leg over the fence like a, a person would step over uh, something that's, you know, like knee high. It just swung one leg over the fence and it was walking away. And it walked, it, it was out of sight so quickly. And, you know, the two of us lost, lost sight of it. And our goal was to watch it and see where it went. But we lost sight of it. It's not that it disappeared. It's that it moved so quickly. And I, I think it probably dropped down on all fours and then booked out of there. But when it did, it went across the, the uh, farmer's property there and off toward a grove of trees. Now, a little further over, um, I've had some family members that have looked it up on a satellite and they have shown me that it would make sense for it to be able to swing up that direction because once it got into that um, tree tree uh, formation that it could easily swing back toward um, see that would be my property would be east of it it went up cross okay it left my property heading north crossed the road there swung its leg over the fence took off headed more northerly toward that grove of trees and the um, images that my cousin was able to come up with that it could easily swing back kind of um, west to southwest and come to a very, very large body of water um, that is west of my property. So the, you know, the area is dotted with um, cornfields and with livestock and fruit trees and lots of ponds. And so I just think that they're uh, ensconced in there. I think they must go out and do raids. I mean, it, it, it just makes sense to me anyway that there's not enough to survive a whole family clan on just my five acres. Um, they've pretty well cleaned everything out that there was to eat. Every animal, I mean, when, when we moved there, that place was like a Garden of Eden. You would see every kind of bird. We had huge flocks of birds that would come in. It was a, a real treat. I kept diaries and would sketch the animals that I saw, and I would look up if I saw something that I didn't know. I had no idea that we would be able to move just a little bit further from home in the same state and that I would have bald eagles flying over my home. I mean, we have, we still see bald eagles. Um, we have bobcats and tons of squirrels and, um, you know, legless lizards. We had some cool things that I had never seen woodcock. And it was, you know, not strange at all to go take a little walk and walk down to the pond and and uh you know scare up a covey of quail that's gone i mean there is nothing you can't hardly find a toad out there 
I loved being outdoors. I still love being outdoors. That's where my heart is. And uh, I, I like to live off the land. I grew up that way. I mean, we grew up burning wood and eating fish that we caught and stuff like that. So I've eaten many a pan of squirrel, you know. Uh, but I see what happens when they move in. And I don't know if they had doing rotation like if they had lived here in the past, because I do have reason to believe that they've frequent. It's kind of like they had lived there until they decimated everything and nothing was left. And now it's kind of like this is still a good place to hide out. But I kind of think that they go out on raids and and um, get wildlife and, you know, eat livestock and, and pets. I know of lots of pets. You know, when I first talked to you, I didn't know very many people that would admit that they had seen them. But I have been able to speak to people as I've gotten to know people through church and so forth, there are quite a few sightings out here. And um, we're not the only ones that have seen them. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't want you to spread it around and and so forth. But I've had people tell me um, we saw something and it was a gorilla. Uh, I had another man tell me we saw something and it was the devil. Uh, Let me ask you this. Couple, couple of questions. Number one, I want to go back to one of our previous um, episodes with you. Mm-hmm. And you had talked about where one of these creatures had a, attacked a lady and actually she had, you know, it was eating her intestine when she came to. And yeah. I wanted to find out. What happened with her? How did she how did she escape from that situation? How is she doing okay. today? And then the okay. and then as a follow up, um, fill us in a little bit on what's going on, like just within the last you know few weeks that when you and I talked the other day, because that's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Okay, that lady still the lady that it was chewing on her intestines. She still lives out there. And she's still alone, and I happened to see her at a at an event that we both go to, a community event. Of course, since COVID, there's not a whole lot of anything, but uh, I did see her. She didn't know that my mother had passed in 2020, and uh, she, you know, expressed her feeling about that. And I told her again. I said, you know that it is not safe for you to be outside a lot out there. You know that. And she said, well, hey, you don't have to worry about me. I'm tough. And I said, "Uh, yes, yes, you've, you've proven that. But I'm telling you that uh, considering the situation, you and I both know what happened to you. We both know it. And I'm just worried about you. And she said, well, I've got family that can check on me from time to time. And it's very, very, very seldom. 
and I said, uh, be very careful with what you throw away. I hope you're not trenching anything in anymore. And she said, you know, actually, the only thing that I do is you've seen it where I have a, a cover crop and another man comes and mows it for me. That's the thing, though, Tom. She's got tall, tall grass clear up to her driveway. And that's where that thing got her before. That's exactly where I saw that thing crawling. It looked like a gigantic hairy black spider when we hadn't had the property very long and I was staying there. Let me ask you this. How did she, when she was in that situation where this thing had attacked her, um, how did she manage to get away from that? Out there, and I found out after the fact. I was home when it happened, I guess, but I didn't realize that it had it had happened. And I happened to see another neighbor, and the other neighbor stopped and asked me how I was doing, and I I said uh, I'm okay. She said, named this other neighbor that lives right across from me, and said, uh, you know, she's been in the hospital. And I said, oh no what's the matter? And she said, well, I'll let Rudy tell you about it. And I said, oh, has Rudy got something to do with it? No, but I'll let Rudy tell you about it. She said, I don't, she's too shook up to really talk to me about it. I thought maybe you were her closer neighbor and you would know. And um, I, I told her, I said, well, I, I, I'll go check on her and I'll see if she needs anything. And of course this woman is fiercely independent And I walked up and and knocked, and she didn't answer the door. So when my mom came around, I told her, I said, something has happened to her, and I'm going to go see if I can, you know, get her to respond to me later. I called the lady that, the other one that spoke to me first. I know this is all very confusing, but I hate to tell names. Uh, I called her because I had her number, the first one I spoke to, and I said, she's not answering the door. And she said, well... Uh, she just may be, you know, so out of it that she can't come to the door. And I said, well, that's a possibility. When I finally got a hold of someone to talk to him about it, she had gone out and she had tried to get a little piece of garden going out on the side of her driveway. And she was going out constantly and checking it and watering it. And um, I'm going to stick my neck out there and say she pissed him off. Uh, she was doing something that wasn't the norm, and I think that something she did, that she was in their area or something, because when I saw the woman walk across there like a spider uh, before this, it walked the exact exact route across her side yard, heading south, and then it turned like it was going to walk along the fence and head up out of sight west and there are heavy trees up there at the time it was very heavily uh timbered uh since then she's had uh, a crew come in and cut a lot of that of those trees out but since she's gotten older um she's not able to keep the place up like she did and trees have grown all along her driveway trees have taken over the north side of her yard and she has trees where there didn't used to be trees 
And I observed to her, I said, you don't need to be out here mowing at all hours of the night. She would mow using the headlamp on the, on the tractor. She had gone out there to check on her little garden. I'm not exactly sure what time of day, but it was daylight. She said that something hit her with tremendous force and knocked her to the ground. When she came to, something black and hairy and enormous was bent over her, feeding on her intestines. Said it had its face down in her belly, chewing. She said it lifted its face and looked at her. She didn't recognize what kind of animal it was. And it had a mouthful of her intestines. Then, from what I can piece from the other neighbor, is that he was supposed to come down and meet her there and talk with her that day because they both, they each had experience with this particular dog trainer and he was going to talk with her about possibly getting her a dog because she was afraid and this person would train the dog, the same dog that he had had his dog trained and it would be the same breeder that the dog that his dog came from. So he opened the door, his dog took off because he's got the property that is further, um, it would be on that side, his property is corner lot and it would be sitting south on the south side of her fence line, of her, of her property line. She walked out toward the property line to get her garden watered when that thing hit her. And apparently she was out again. She passed out again. And the man said that lives south of her that he was supposed to meet her that day and that he opened the door and his dog took off like a streak. So he chased the dog and didn't take the road, but instead went back through his horse pasture. And the dog ran up to her and found her laying there like that. And so he basically saved her life by getting her help. Now, she just gets a really spooked expression on her face. And she says that they came in and talked to her at the hospital several times and told her that she did not see anything strange, that it was just a big dog, a big black dog. And for proof, which I don't need the proof. I trust this woman. She's, you know, a very trustworthy person. I went up there to check on her, and she had lost a brother in the process of healing. And so I had something. My mom had baked something, and I had something. Went up there to check on her. She was still healing. And she showed me her abdomen. And I am telling you, when a person has dark skin and they are shredded, there are scars there that can be seen. This woman was definitely attacked and, and torn up. She had to have a lot of reconstructive surgery done on that. 
And I mean, when you consider that the people who own the property that, that we bought that property from had a son that lived there and that he had a party lifestyle and that all of the witnesses from the party have that I have spoken to reliable people because, you know, sometimes the party crowd, well, I don't know, but I do know some people that have grown up since then and they're respectable people. They said that something black came up out of that gully at the back and out of the, out of the timber and attacked them. And then that was his uh, cue to sell the place and not, not come back. He didn't even want to go out and feed the horses anymore. Uh, he was literally shaken. And you think about who he got the property from before that, that lady, they called her the goat lady. And um, I, I spoke to people that knew her that were in their nineties that remembered her. I can't get an exact bead on what year, I would like to see if I could find out if that it was ever covered in the local newspaper or not. But that woman kept saying that something was eating her livestock. She had goats and chickens, and she depended on that. Uh, she sold milk and uh, eggs, and I think she had rabbits, goats, and chickens, if I remember right. And the people that told me these things are now gone themselves. Um, I was young when I moved out here and I'm 60 now. So this has been some time ago, but that lady, the gold lady, she totally disappeared. She had told anyone that would listen to her that she was afraid to be out there at night, that she would try to do her chores in the daytime and get right back inside. And she went missing and they ended up pushing her little farmhouse down, uh, down the pasture and into the gully and just completely cleared it. And it reverted back to the people who originally had that property. And then they ended up selling it to the party crowd that I've already told you about. So, you know, the... The thing was, when we looked at the property to begin with, it had a creepy vibe, but um, I don't think that people, you hear, hear that term tossed around nowadays pretty frequently, you know, if you listen to much of anything on YouTube, but um, this woman that lived there originally, she actually was afraid for her life. And she, um, she had to have those livestock. She had to make a living on that. That's all she had. And to think that she just disappeared on the title to the property, which is now mine since my mother has died, it says that it formerly belonged to blank blank. It's got her name on there. And it says who was who disappeared under strange circumstances and was never found in which case it, that it goes on and it says that it reverted back to the original farm family that had it. Then it passed through the hands of this other family, uh, which 
there again, I know it's very confusing and not having names, that bought it for the express purpose of putting their son on there and letting him uh, start out life. And, you know, he got a mobile home put on there, but then he started really partying. And I guess they had quite a few blowouts out there. Uh, one of the girls that um, told her testimony to me, which I will not reveal her name because I don't have her permission to do that. And I'm, you know, you're not asking me to do that. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to do that, but I tell you what, the things that she has told me and three others told me individually, and yet their stories all fit their, their testimony is the same that they had parties there, that some of them stayed inside the trailer to make out. Some of them went outside. I guess they had up to 30 people out there at a time uh, drinking and being a little stupid. They had a pond down there uh, at the time that I guess they had stocked some little catfish in. And everybody scattered around over the property, uh, um, you know, with their girlfriends, whatever. And they had some campfires going. Some were in the trailer and some were outside. She was in the trailer when it happened. And she told me that uh, the ones outside feared for their lives, said something big and black roared and came up out of the woods and put a stop to it all. So I never did hear that anyone was uh, critically injured. Um, but she used to say to me once in a while, is that where you live? And she first got to know us. She would say, now explain to me where you live again. And the first few times she said that to me, I thought that she was either forgetful and asking me again, or she couldn't quite put a bead on the area. And we would give her the address and stuff. And after I got to know her a little bit better at church, and I had some of her children in Sunday school, she leveled with me and she said um, that, you know, she had told her kids the stories of what happened out there and that her kids were begging to go camp out there. And she said, I want to tell you that if my kids beg you to camp out there, no. Before they ever ask, no. And I said, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask them to. And she said, I'm just getting straight with you because I know what went on out there. And God only knows what that was. But I don't want my kids ever out there. And I said, well, you have my word on it. I would never do that. She said, you know, because sometimes the church will get together and they'll take kids camping somewhere or something. I said, right, right. She said, but, you know, if they're going to do it on your property, no. So, you know, I can't be told any more clearly. Um, the, the things that have happened recently have been um, my opinion and from what I can find out is after 2017, they began to come into town 
Um, I think that they were tempted because there is a deep gully that runs through the park and up behind um, a church, and it comes up toward my mother's house. And there is a restaurant on that way that they put their grease out that they use in the deep fryers and stuff. And I believe that they were hitting the grease, the grease in the trash. And I knew a girl that worked there and she was telling me some things that they had experienced. And uh, my mother had a very big face print, like an oily skinned face, very large. And that was on her kitchen window. And I had gone around the perimeter of her house to check on things and uh, make sure that her water uh, hose was put away and that things weren't dripping and, you know, just kind of checking for her. And uh, that's when I saw the light hit that window just right. And it was um, it was a hairy face, mostly hair off of the you know, around from the eyes, you could see a, a hairy brow ridge pressed up against the window. You could see that whatever this was was tall enough to stand at the side of the window and hide itself uh, by the wall itself and then lean forward and put the face up against the glass and when it did that, it would be looking directly in at the kitchen at my mother where she would be, you know, fixing her meals and stuff in the kitchen. So that would be kind of a food odor, perhaps, you know, at the kitchen, come up to the window and and whistle and do the same whistle that we would hear that same whistle in at the property out in the country. Uh, she had... Uh, Something come and manhandled her trash container in town, and it left muddy handprints all over the lid of the trash can like it was a newfangled trash can, and it's like it couldn't figure out how to get in it. And uh, it had been rainy, and so, you know, the, the mud handprints, it was hands, handprint, you know, handprints with, with hairy, hairy wrists. Uh, you could see where it dragged its hands across the lid like it couldn't quite figure out how to get into the lid now she had the trash can right by the back door because uh i wasn't with her that night but she was going to come get me the next day and we were going to kind of round up some things for her put fill her trash can put the move the can out to the corner where it belongs and so that was one of the early things that happened uh we were together uh, one day, this was around uh, her first Christmas in the home, 2017, where she decided, you know, oh my gosh, the first thing we did, we moved in. The first thing we did, I know my uncle said, oh, this house is so cute, you know, just leave all the windows open and it's got new blinds on it and stuff. Just leave them open, Donna. You can have, you know, and think about how this will look. It'll be so nice. And, and uh, no, we, we had already had experience and we covered every window up even if we didn't have curtains we took towels and things to to cover the windows up um yeah paranoid sure go ahead you know it's like fine you know call me paranoid um but 
like I say, Christmas, she decided she was going to have a Christmas tree because everybody else had a Christmas tree in their window that was facing the road. So she pulled the curtains back and pulled the blinds up and she took her little Christmas tree and she put it in the window there. Well, I come to visit her and I take a little walk around the outside of the house and there in the snow are two uh, knuckle hand, you know, imprints of hands on the knuckles side by side next to her porch and like it paused there and looked in the window and so um, she ended up telling me later that before Christmas was over with that she got up in the night and she saw the outline of something one of the neighbor's um, uh, lights and the street light illuminated it from behind, and she said it was one of those things. So we immediately, you know, moved the tree and started taking everything down. It was after this, let's see, let me think if that was 2017 or 2018. It was in the fall when I found the face print on the glass, but no matter how I tried, I couldn't get a good photograph of that. And they were still coming into town and pissing on her car. Fresh piss. She would wash the car, wash it away, and very greasy and very hard to get off. And so, you know, it would be easy to say, well, that's, you know, in town and there are people on foot. Okay, fine. Uh, it just didn't add up. I've got some photographs that I took of where they began to bring her gifts. Now, I'm assuming that one of them at a time comes into town. I don't have any reason to think otherwise, but I, be I do believe that they come into town because of uh, the nut trees and things. And I think that, that they're still connected. They're still um, keeping a tab on me, if you will. Um, I sound paranoid. I realize that. But the main thing is that we had nuts falling on the deck. Okay. And so we had a light snow, and I had been up late. I forget what family drama it was or what, but it was really, really after midnight before I got to sleep. And then I didn't sleep much, and then I got up early, and I went ahead. I thought, well, you know, it'll be 6 o'clock before you know it. And I went ahead and I got dressed, put on my boots, and went outside. And um, I forget what it was I was going out to do. Anyway, I got out there. I nearly stepped on handprints on the on the wooden steps and on the wooden deck, and uh, kind of did a double take. And I decided to come back in and get the phone and take some pictures of it. And when I blew the pictures up and looked closely, I could see those telltale fingernails because the fingernails look flat. Their fingernails don't look like claws. They look like unkempt human, or for that matter, gorilla fingernails. Uh, the thumb is set back. The thumb is kind of knobby and set back. And uh, they're, in other words, think of a kind of like a, almost kind of like a human hand, except their palm is much longer. It's an elong elongated hand. And to me, it looked like, well, since the deck is normally covered with nuts and the deck has continued to be covered with nuts because every time you've got a wind or a storm or something, more nuts fall and they'll continue to fall 
they can talk, they continue to fall for quite some time. They start and fall, and they can, they're still falling. Uh, so normally, I open the door, and there are nuts all over the deck. There weren't any nuts, but there were these fingerprints in the snow, like something really large had picked the nuts up. Uh, so it continues, not as much as uh, as perhaps at times that it has in the past. And as I say, I am living at my mother's house for now. And um, I will have to cross the bridge where I will have to try to uh, tie up all the loose ends and try to sell my property. Yeah, that's we we you and I talked about that, and you won't stay at that property, um, so I don't blame you. I wouldn't either. Well, listen, we're we're just about out of time, Carol. I can't thank you enough for the updates and especially the story with uh, you know when you're a youngster camping with your mom and dad. Uh, very very uh, interesting, but also. Uh, very dreadful, very scary experience. So I'm pretty sure we're going to be having you back on again at some point in the future because it sounds like the activity hasn't gone away and you're in a very active area. So I want to thank you for your time this evening. I realize it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're taking a couple hours of your evening, but we really appreciate it. I appreciate having you all to talk to about this. I appreciate the fact that somebody out there realizes and takes this seriously. And I appreciate all of Will's effort and the the long years that he has put into this. And I, I have, it's benefited me and I've done a lot of things that, that I have heard suggested uh, by him that has helped make me a little bit safer. And um, sometime, if you decide to have me back, I would like to talk to you about the youngest one, Tanny, the one I call Tanny. And uh, it's not like she knows what her name is, but I call her Tanny to keep her separate so I can kind of keep track of what, what her movements are and uh, about their, the language that I've heard. And other than that, I just appreciate your time and, and uh, uh, love to you all, okay? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, this Tanny business is new, so, yeah, we're going to have you back. Tanny's one of the most recent, and I have seen her a number of times. So, yeah, she's not got much, how do you say, she's, she was very young, and she's not, not so young now, but I've got quite a few sightings when her, um, about her. So, yeah, I, I just appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. And Tom will arrange that to uh, uh, have you back so we can talk about this one. Okay. All right. I will because if I can help somebody else, then these are the things that has taken me 20 years to even kind of wrap my head around. And I'm I'm grateful because the more knowledge that I have, I can't really defend with much of anything else, but it does help me to have as much knowledge as I can get because that way it prepare, it helps me prepare myself for, you know, some of the things that have happened have been just really terrifying. So it kind of helps you to um, brace. 
I don't know how else to put it, but just to to brace. I'm not going to be a sitting duck. I'm going to try to do whatever I can do to avoid them, get along, not encourage them. I don't want to put a welcome mat out for them. They're interesting, yes. Other than that, they can stay where they are, and I'll just be the person that pays the taxes, and uh, we can stay out of each other's hair. Right. And, <laughs> if that's and, and it absolutely does help other people, you know, hearing what you've had to say. Well, I'm, I hope so. I really do. That's That's my hope. All right. Well, thank you, Carol. Everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, near Ruby, Alaska, August 1960, Paul Peters told Bob Betts he saw a bushman climb a steep hill by the river and disappear into the bush. It was upright, quite tall and broad, covered with dark hair. It walked like a man. When he first saw it, it was walking toward him along the beach. This was at his fish camp 10 miles down the Yukon from Ruby. Welcome back from the break, everyone. I hope you enjoyed. That was a little bit longer uh, interview with Carol. It's the third time we've interviewed her. And, of course, she had new information and things that she hadn't discussed previously. But, uh, Tom, Milo, how are you guys doing this morning? Doing good. Doing good. Doing good. Excellent. Well, yeah. Excited for this episode. Cool. We're going to do a little bit of a mixture, something we haven't done in a while. And, and my apologies for that, folks, is to go back and look at the uh, comments on YouTube. and Because uh, we like to acknowledge our listeners and uh, and we'll do questions. So, uh, Tom, why don't you go ahead and kick this off? I, th- I know you had some questions lined up. Absolutely. And first thing I want to say is I want to thank everybody for sending us questions. They really uh, they keep the topic interesting. They uh, they add information to it. So, uh, and if you like the show, uh, let us know. Click the like button. Smash the like button. Uh, and and click the bell and subscribe. It uh, helps us. It helps us to help you. Um, so one of the first questions we have is actually from Forrest, anthropologist we had on recently. And, she, Will, she wanted to know what information you have on the four different types. How do you differentiate them? And I know you have some basic stuff, so... What yeah, do you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm supposed to meet with Mr. Black at some point, and he didn't want to discuss it in detail until we were actually in person. So still, we're still arranging that. So um, I'm working with limited information, folks, and I'm going on what he told me. But it also coincides with what people like John Napier wrote in his book, uh, Bigfoot, and some other people, and they're thinking at that time, you know, we're talking... 1960s and early 70s where and i'll go first of all what napier said and based on footprint morphology he thought that there were at least two different types or or subspecies of the creatures it's because the two types were very there were enough differences between them to indicate two different kinds of sasquatch if you were so 
what Mr. Black told me, and I know there were other people out there who claimed uh, that they they came up with this. That's nonsense because it came directly to me from this individual. Okay, he said that there were uh, two, basically two main groupings, two species groupings or subspecies. I, I don't know how it's divided up yet. I'm, I mean, I'm not uh, not any kind of specialty of mine. I'm just going on what I was told. So two main groupings, and just for the sake of discussion, because I haven't got the terminology yet, uh, we'll say species group A and species group B. Within those groupings, there are two subcategories, okay? And I call them, and I've named, just call them type 1s through 4. Type 1 is what you see, and and we'll go with species group A first, okay? And that has what I call... Um, the type ones and type fours because they have the most similarities physically. Um, that's why I put them into that grouping. And then type uh, group B has the types twos and threes because um, some similarities, but more geographical location or so similar. So um, we have type one, which is what you see in the Patterson film, large bipedal creature. Uh, of course, now we know that they, they will also move in all fours. But uh, no, no canines. They have large, blocky, what's been described as Lincoln Log-type teeth. Or people say chiclets or something like that, but big, blocky-looking teeth, right? Um, reside mostly in the Pacific Northwestern region of the country, but are seen elsewhere sometimes, but predominantly in the Northwest. And there's the Type 4 creature, which was what you see with the Minnesota Iceman. And, that's, and they're smaller... Um, I, I would guess, you know, if you were going to give a description more like what a person might say, you know, is, is more of like a caveman. They don't really have uh, facial hair. Kind of neanderthal Kind of. Yeah. Kind of in that, in that <laughs> guess, you know, oh, but God. you know, but you know, foot, yeah. the footprints, I have some very good footprints are sent to me by moose hunters and, and some others in the Northeastern regions of the U S and Canada. And, um, you know, you very, very similar to the Sasquatch prints uh, on the footprint part, but the description physically is different. So then we go to the grouping, of B grouping, the type twos uh, that have more pronounced canines. They're seen in groups more often. They inhabit the southeastern part of the country predominantly um, and more aggressive than, than what you see in the northwestern part of the country. The type three inhabits primarily along the Mississippi drainage system, and they have the elongated face, you know, that more simian, uh, you know, protruding face, kind of a kind of like a baboon. And and I don't have a great deal of information on that type, so um, that's kind of the four types break down. And then around the North American continent, you have. 22 variations of each of those, you know, because the gene pools don't totally mix. So you get isolated groupings, uh, you know, breeding populations. So different traits uh, are favored for different environments. And I'll give an example of that. Like we have a couple different variations of the type ones. The ones who are in the mountainous terrain are very heavily built, very stocky, you know, more adapted for mountainous terrain east of the mountains where it's more flat open they're leaner uh more more in favor of running things like that 
Okay. Well, that actually is a very good um, breakdown, good description. And the and Will, you and I have talked about the Type Fours as being a you know kind of a different critter from the rest of them. Yeah, it might not be a Sasquatch type creature at all. You know, that could be one of those relic hominids that's you know defied. Uh, conventional thinking and actually survived in some pockets. I can I, I can see that you know that. Now are we talking kind of like a animalistic, like a baboon, where they're very aggressive, or? Yeah, I mean, well, if if you're to believe Frank Hansen's story, they, you know, when he came on three the three of the creatures after he shot the deer and it ran off. Uh, the creatures had the deer, and two of the creatures took off running. The third one uh, attacked him, and he shot it and killed mm-hmm. it. Milo, do you got questions? or? Well, um, a lot of mine, now I go back to, it's probably off topic, and maybe i got to work on that a little bit. But I was listening to one of your earlier episodes with uh, uh, episode 52, where John and his family, you you saw the one in the trail by the railroad tracks. We found the tracks, yeah, the footprints. Yeah. And then, now, I, what I got out of that is when everybody went back to the tracks, the entrails were gone. I don't Did remember. anybody? I don't remember if they were there or not. I mean, I, John said that, but I don't. I didn't look. I, yeah. We were, I was more focused on going to where the footprints were. Right. And there was a and, gaggle and, of kids, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, well, I guess what I was trying to get back was, God, I wish there was more to it. If, if you couldn't remember that part where I was hearing John saying that he didn't remember that either, where if the intros, because everybody was like, oh, the footprints, the footprints. And then yeah. when you got, now I think he said there's a total of five of you all out there. Oh, more than that. Let's see. John oh, had, really? John had, you... There was me and John and Mark. Okay. And John had two younger sisters and two younger brothers and his dad. Oh, Four, five six, plus eight, you there, there were eight of us out there, yeah. Okay, okay. Now, it was like, now this is when John's dad said, ooh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot, or and then everybody else is like, "What?" I th- I thought that was interesting. Yeah, we and were then, all, we were all kind of scratching our heads, like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> what that, are you talking about? <laughs> so that's the first time you ever heard that word. The first time I ever heard it, yeah. And and this is 1972, right? Right, December 72. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so you, you know, John, about 14. We we're about 14. Yeah, John and I've talked about it, you know, a number of times since then, you know, yeah. especially in the past few years, and. uh I mean, shoot, that's was 49 years ago and counting. Right. So, and everybody kind of sees things from their own perspective. So there were things that I saw that John didn't see or, or Mark might have seen and, um, you know, that were different, you know, because their, foc- well, their focus was different. Right. And then what I got from that, too, is John and them guys just came from Tacoma and they're you know, they were farmers for six months out of being city boys and stuff. Kind of like me. I mean, when I met you, I the first time I went out, I, I, hell, you know, Long Beach, California to 
Puyallup, you know, come on. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a culture change, that's for sure. <laughs> it is. It really is. So when you go out there, you're you're already over. I, I, no, I would say not overwhelmed, but at awe of the wilderness. Yeah, and it was a little different for me too because I mean, we uh, we lived out uh in pretty rural areas before we moved to graham we lived in a place just four miles from there on the puyallup river and that was pretty okay. that was pretty wild back in those days and yeah. uh, you know i was used to you know going well that's with, old river world right that's are we talking that part of puyallup or no no more out towards um oh it was out south of ording out that way Going, going away oh, from okay. going away from populated areas. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there was. I mean, even to this day, there's still not a whole lot out there. I mean, uh, more more and more people, of course. But back in those days, when you're talking the mid '60s, so yeah. Uh, but then even Graham, well, even Graham wasn't wasn't built up. I mean, you know, you remember what it was like out there. Oh yeah, just like going out to your house, it was like nothing but you know. There was nothing on the highway. No, there Mount was nothing highway out there. Was Mount Highway. Tom, what do you and got? And Meridian. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Tom. You got uh, something else? I mean, Well, okay. So, Chris, Chris Wondell, and, and Will, this is going to tie in very much with, um, so it must be a, a really a question. And, you know, if you're getting it from two different sources, this is, all, this is very similar to, you know, what Forrest asked. Chris wants to know, here's a question for you guys. How would you rank the four types of Bigfoot in the order of which you would want to encounter more and why? <laughs> that's, well, <laughs> that's a good question. Yes. Um, from the things I've heard about the type twos, I don't think I'd really want to encounter them uh, because they're they're very aggressive and, and they're seen mostly in groupings. Now, the type ones always travel in groups too, but you don't usually see the whole group. Um, and, and typically they don't exhibit, you know, that violent behavior, not to the degree the other ones do. The type threes, I don't know a whole lot about, so I, I can't really say on that one, but, um, you know, it's knowledge is more knowledge is better. So I'll stick with the ones that I know. Well, I thought the type ones are bad enough. They're bad enough. Yeah. But, but I guess if you had to place them in a ranking, I'd rather encounter one of those, which I have, as opposed to the other ones. Okay, I got a question. So where the the place that we are going, what what is the um, type that we are expected to meet? Those are the type ones. Those are type ones. Yeah, like like what you see in the Patterson the ones film. We're familiar with. It's not all that far, really, from you know where the Patterson Sasquatch was last seen, so... Or not seen, yeah. but the tracks were found. Wow. That's... And you know, that, you know what they say. Better you know the what? devil you know than the one you don't. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. I mean, if you, you have some knowledge about um, what you're dealing with as, as opposed to going in blind, you know, I'll, I'll take the one I know something about as opposed to the blind situation. <laughs> I kind of wow. prefer to know what I'm getting into if I can, if I possibly can. Right? That's amazing. See, that, here I am, you know, ooh, cool, we're good. You know, you got, I wanted to say the 
the Patterson one, you know, that so we're actually going to meet a bully. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got to make sure I'm not the slowest guy in the group. <laughs> are, are, Milo, are you saying you don't want the bait shirt? <laughs> no, I don't want the bait shirt. I'm not the Claymore man in this. Oh, screw that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really disappointed, Milo. <laughs> Why are you expect? Oh hell no! <laughs> you know, but that is a good idea, Milo. You could bring some claymores and those little hair strings. No, I don't and... mean that as claymore. See, back in the army, a claymore man was the guy you strapped that thing to, it and you told that dumbass to go run towards the enemy, and you were clacking <laughs> on that thing. A, a, a volunteer. I'm not volunteering anymore, dude. Our, Those days are done. Our our, I, uh, I, our our other veteran friends out there will understand that one about the volunteer. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't there's one branch in the military where they say never again volunteer yourself? <laughs> yeah. You know there there's things like that, but uh, you know my uh, I never answered to hey you. I never turn around. And I learned that when I was a bomb holder. It was, you never, you never turn around. My name ain't Hey You. We we used to joke and, and yell out, you know, to the guys in the platoon if they were, you know, after we released them, be walking off to whatever their duty was. We hear Hey You in the green, <laughs> and see which which ones turned around. Yeah, that was the joke is that everybody's wearing green. Kept on going. Everybody, everybody's wearing green, right? So right. Hey You. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back in. Let's move on to the next questions, folks. All right. Absolutely. Okay, so Scott wants to know, he says, Hey, Will, um, what's the best tactic to keep Sasquatch away from your home? And he's got, I'll just read the list. There's five, five options. Flood lighting installed around the perimeter of your home. Motion lighting and or cameras around your home. Shooting shotgun rounds <clears throat> into the ground. He said, this was suggested to me by another YouTube channel. Um, actually speaking into the woods and telling them to stay away from our house. Uh, this was also suggested to me by another YouTube channel. I think that one's the most effective uh, for doing nothing, but uh, who knows? And that's my opinion. Uh, and then the other one would be lighting off fireworks on a regular schedule. Well, okay. There's some good things, some not good things. Um, the first thing you want to do is if you've got brush or any kind of vegetation close to your house, you, you need to have an open field around your house of at least 50 feet. They don't like crossing those open areas because they're seen. So that's probably the first thing I would do. The second one would be the lighting, and especially motion sensor lighting. Because that'll throw them off. Now, they, they watch for patterns. So, if you're going to go out and do something on a regular basis, don't do that because they'll pick up on that pattern and they'll do whatever they're doing outside of the pattern. Uh, but what you do want to do is kind of change up your routine. If you're concerned, if you've got them around there, you know, throw them off guard. Talking out into the woods is a good thing, but not for that reason. You're not telling them anything. What they think is there are more people around than what they see. That throws them off. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't advocate going shooting a bunch of guns around now. 
because that could could get you uh, an unexpected consequence. It could ramp up their aggression. But cut the brush back. Uh, mark your territory. Mark your territory with either bleach or vinegar. Um, you know, do unexpected patterns. Talk like they're talk. If you're alone, talk openly so that they think there are other people around. And uh, and if you have friends that you know come over, you know, just cars driving around periodically that throws them off. So those are a few things you can try. You know, I hadn't thought about the uh, actually speaking into the woods that because we've you've talked about that with you know if you're getting paste or you think one's after you and you're in the woods act like there's more people around we've had people do this and it's actually worked we're like loud music or some loudspeakers or something yeah i i see that the whole thing is about their impression you know the music right. loud noises might not bother them but talking if they think other people are around that's going to really spook them Especially huh. if they don't, if they can't see them and don't know where they are, it'll throw them off. Well, yeah, a boombox with some deaf leopards might do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I would do that. I don't know that it bothers them. Yeah, it's like things like fireworks and stuff like that. I mean, you know, they're, they're gonna they're gonna carefully watch what's going on, and what you want to do is you want to put them off their footing. So if they think something like more people is dangerous to them, if they think there are more people around, especially when they can't see them, it's going to put them in check. That makes sense. I mean, of all of that, that that's probably the only working thing I really, I can see working. That one, the lighting and cutting the brush back away from your house. Now, when you say lighting, are we saying like when, uh, motion sensor lights, it, things like that? Okay. Okay, but then again, you got to have the no, no, you got to like have the open light, area. Yeah, you got to have the yeah. open area. Okay, let's... giant mirror ball, lasers. <laughs> yeah, I had to laugh when I heard about the disco ball thing. That's just craziness. Yeah. Okay, um, here's a really good question. This is from Danny, and I, I actually like this one because I think about this when I go outside, but uh, he, he wants to know, are we more likely to hear vocals on a new moon as opposed to a full moon? And I just don't have an answer to that. Well, <clears throat> I don't know if anything's been tracked along those lines, but let's take a look at what, you know, deer and other animals do during those lighting conditions. Uh, if there's, makes, I like that. Yeah, if there's, if there's a lot of light, let's say moonlight, you're probably going to get deer out feeding, you know, during those time periods, you know, because it's, uh, at least I, I would think so. So, I mean, and but the thing is, during a lot of moonlight, they could be seen easier by the game animals than, say, when it's raining or dark. When it's raining, the sound, the sound of the rain muffles their movements. You know, sort of that no right. noise camouflage, something Milo, you know, we learned in the military. Oh, yeah, you I... Know, you Man, can, I couldn't wait for it to rain. Yeah, you can you can move a lot less carefully when there's other noise going on that covers your sound, right? So you can move faster and, and a little less careful. 
um, when there's, let's say, bright lighting conditions at night, full moon, you know, it would make hunting more difficult. So that yeah. might that might be, you know. Well, and I would think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was just um, thinking in terms when you know, talk about a wet forest. Of course, it it is more quiet than the dry snapping twigs. And I think what might be worse, and Lee and I have talked about this, and Will, you and I have too, snow mm-hmm. muffles all the sounds. These things can really sneak up on you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh-oh. We have some, we have some background noise. <laughs> yeah, Jeannie. Yeah, what was that? Jeannie. What was Jeannie? <laughs> She's getting ready to go uh, on a trip. So... I, can't, I was trying to remember, you know, on the lighting, you know, my dad talked about, you know, hunting when I was a kid. And I believe that the deer will, when it's bright moonlight, they'll feed at night and bed down the daytime. So it's bad for hunting, uh, as opposed to if it's overcast or whatever, you know, that they'll be up feeding in the daytime because they didn't yeah. hunker down at night. See that? Yeah. To me, that's just common sense. I mean, you, why would you want to silhouette yourself? Yeah, I mean, you, know. you you have to look at what the game is doing. Yeah. If you figure out what the game is doing during those lighting conditions, then you kind of figure out what these things are doing because they're going to follow the food. Makes sense to me because, you know, I don't want anybody seeing me if I'm stalking them. You yeah, know, that's you true. You get up off early in the morning and catch me peeking through your bedroom window. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go near that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We'll just leave that one be. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> Back in All the, right, Will, we yeah. got another one here. Okay. And part of this, we may want to leave it be, but I'll just ask it anyway. This is from Richard. He says, Will, can you go over the several people that you've talked to over the years that know the government knows about Bigfoot? And then the other part of his question is... Also, why are professional trackers unable to track a Bigfoot? The first part of the question, I'm just going to leave. Um, the second part, well, professional trackers, I know professional trackers that have tracked the creatures. So, you know, don't make that assumption that pro- professional trackers can't. They have. And, and I'm actually talking to one right now at this very moment. He's answering <laughs> your question. I'll, uh, I'll give you a couple examples. If you go back to the late 60s, um, in Skamania County, the sheriff of the county at the time brought in a professional tracker, and they followed tracks. And this is and that's rough country, Skamania County, where this happened. I, I was taken around a show in the area where the tracks were followed for more than five miles by this tracker. And I can't recall offhand what the reason they quit. Either they lost the trail or... Um, whatever circumstances were going on, but um, you know, there was so much going on sightings and things at that time, and I think that was 1969, but they did bring a professional tracker in, and they, and they were able to track the creatures. Um, there were other instances, let me think, there was another one, a really good one too. Uh, oh, we had Dan on, who uh, his father used to work for the Canadian government, you know, with their wildlife, and uh, he was he was the guy that was 
Um, when they had bad bear incidents, he was the guy they brought in to handle that, but he was a professional tracker and a very good one. And, of course, he taught his son Dan all this stuff about tracking, and and Dan and his father were able to track these creatures. So uh, it does happen. The other question is, would you want to? Well, here's the other part of that. Would you want to be right hot on their trail? (laughs) Here's the other part of that. I mean, you know, sometimes you might have to go, if you're tracking the creatures, you're not just going to track them a couple of miles and, and walk up on them. You know, they might go, it could be 100 miles or more that they would travel. So, you know, I, I'm really not sure that, you know, the expenditure of resources and time would be in your best interest to try to do something like that, especially if the creatures knew you were following them. They're going to keep going. They're going to go places where you can't go. Well, I was going to say either that or do you think it's possible they might sit there and go, okay. You're a sack lunch. Come on in. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you want to follow me? Okay. Follow me to the lunch counter. What are we yeah. having? You. Yeah. <laughs> and and they Soft might... Taco. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. They might actually try to draw you in further. Yes. Further. I don't know. It's it's a possibility, it, right, it's, Will? It's happened, absolutely. I've interviewed people where this <laughs> has happened. So just to be out... You know, they're not a stupid animal. You're, you're going to be out following something around that's an apex predator... Um, better have your ducks in line. Yeah, I think of these yeah. things personally as kind of fugitives. You're following a very intelligent, very aggressive, very dangerous fugitive. And you're not just following one. you got a whole group no. to contend with. So if you don't know their area, you don't know what their behavior is, you don't know the signs to look for, uh, you don't know what their intentions are, you better leave it alone. <clears throat> All right, here's one. Steve wants to know. Actually, this is a you know this is a, a well thought out question. And again, folks, this is why we we really encourage people to ask these questions because it it keeps again it keeps the topic fresh. It keeps us on our toes, and uh, it it moves the topic forward. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Steve, and he's got a few questions in here, but the first one is, has anybody swabbed a footprint um, or cast for uh, for DNA? Well, okay, the problem again with DNA is you got to have a known sample to compare it to. Otherwise, you don't get much information. I mean, it's not... If, if you had had DNA from a Sasquatch and it's been collected by by police and you know processed and all that stuff and it's not the aha moment you know a lot of people think it is it's not going to come up bigfoot the closest the closest thing it's ever come up to is unknown primate and that really doesn't give you much yeah and i think what a lot of people are thinking and this is uh you know when they're asking the uh the dna question is well, hey, gosh, yeah, that's fine. Unknown primate would be fine because it would be uh, something that would prove that Bigfoot exists. I think that's where most people are going with the DNA question. And, and it won't. And here's the problem. And same thing, and something Rene DeHinnon told me years ago. He says, you know, you could have one picture, you could have a thousand pictures of one of these things, crystal clear. As long as you got one person saying, ah, oh, that's BS, it still throws the entire thing into question. 
like Photoshop to yeah, I to mean, and especially today, there's Hulkson way or, yeah, there's way too much of that stuff. So you know, and and I've ta- you know we talked to John, our anthropologist, and to be quite honest, you know, he said, which is typical in science, if you don't have one on the slab, it, it's really not worth uh, anything. Whatever the other whatever the other stuff is, whatever the other proof is. And I know people don't like to hear that, but that comes from scientists, so right. you have to argue with the scientist. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it, it's kind of like I I I I have I don't know one. Now I understand the whole thing with you know deer dropping, sir. But until I actually see a Bigfoot crapping in the woods, that I'm not going to tell. I couldn't tell. I'm I'm saying that for me. Oh, I, I'll you show know, you. I'll show you the difference. <laughs> okay but you know what I, i'm just saying for me right now i understand you know if you're talking gigantic pile compared to little rabbit you know ooh, two or three little things to a whole gigantic you know what five pounds worth of mm-hmm. crap on the on the trail now that to me would say well oh, that's a big animal yeah that i would not say that is bigfoot because I couldn't tell because I've never seen Bigfoot crap in, in the woods. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is I, that? Well, yeah, I mean. I'm saying that from a layman, you know, a a, a kind of, you know, I mean, I when I go out in the woods or trails or whatever, it's like, oh, I wonder what that is. Well, a couple of things. First of all, okay. a, a Sasquatch isn't going to go take a dump on a trail you're hiking on. You know. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying that as. And a lot of know. people, hunters especially, will find something out there and they'll dismiss it as bear, when they th- what they think they know isn't correct. There's a lot of people who grew up in the woods and hunt and, and everything, just like I did. Uh, you know, you, you you come up learning this stuff from your parents or whoever, and and so you have a preconceived idea. And you find something that's sort of out of the wheelhouse, and you just say, "Okay, that's the that's the closest thing." That's what I talk about—a frame of reference, right? It's the things you learn and experience in life. Right. So when something comes in front of you, like that. Yeah. When something comes in front of you, you don't know. Your brain looks for all the answers, okay, and it goes digs into that, digs into that uh, frame of reference, and comes up with the answers. It's it's kind of the same thing. Like our, our brains never stop searching for answers. You know, that's why, like, you, you'll think of something like, oh, God, I can't remember what the name of that person was or, or this show or whatever. And then a week later, it'll pop into your head out of the blue. That's because right. consciously you move on to different things. But subconsciously, your brain will continue looking for that answer until it comes up with something. So when they find this, you know, this enormous pile of scat, they automatically think, oh, that's got to be a big bear. Well, it's not a bear. So what you have to do is you have to go look, do some research, and there's plenty of stuff out there on what these different animals' scat looks like and is composed of and the size and all that stuff. And then you can, with a pretty reasonable amount of assurance, be certain that when you find something that's, you know, uh, like I have that's up to four inches across the segment, that is not a bear. So what else could there be out there that does that? And be that big. Yeah, I mean, you're you're left with 
not many uh not many possibilities well that rules out a squirrel yeah if, that, if there's a squirrel that big i'm running for the hills <laughs> well and and here we go the poor bears again get they're victims everything. of these things just as much as everything else and they get blamed for it yeah and and there's other things too like something bob titmus and and a few others talked about uh witnesses i mean that i've i've talked to where oftentimes the creatures will defecate in water so you're not going to find the scat just out hiking around mm-hmm. some places like i have one area that's very remote takes takes a great deal of time to get into uh and typically i've gone there several years in a row and, and have found scat there in august every time not other times of the year because they're not there during the other times of the year it's only come into that area and what they were doing in that particular area was leaving scat in the high country and they were driving the deer and other animals into the low areas into uh, uh, choke points where they could prey on them hmm. because you go down in those areas and there was no scat down there right so they were channeling they were channeling them. To, so then i would go yeah. into the timber after thinking about okay if they're doing this all over the place up here they get pretty active bowel movement so uh that's not going to stop down here right if they're here so what i did was i found it yeah. hidden inside the tree lines and that's where they were they were ambushing animals see that 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 is something that should make people really get a heads up there are an ambush predator and that's a high degree of intelligence knowing that yeah. your your scat is going to make the prey animals bug out of that location into other places and then when they go someplace where they don't see the scat, well, that's where the creatures are. Yeah. You know, the other heads up is when they defecate in the water. And other animals do that as well. Elk, mm-hmm. deer, uh, you know, probably bear as well. They're hiding so their presence. The bears. They're hiding their presence. Yeah. Yeah. And so... When you're out camping or you're backpacking, can I say... <laughs> Don't drink the water. <laughs> water. Yeah, water filter. Boil that uh, water really good. <laughs> makes sense to uh, me. Yeah. it's You know, you don't have to, but uh, that'd be my first choice. Okay, I'm going to get back to this guy's question because it sounds like he used to be a pipe layer. And he says, uh, they used to check... Uh, soil the compression of the tamp soil before laying a pipe. Mm-hmm. They checked the hardness. Um, he, he wanted to know about using that same device that could check the hardness of a track. And this is something, Will, we've kind of talked about this. <clears throat> this would be an interesting tool, so we may want to look into this. Mm-hmm. Something that could determine uh, the probable <laughs> weight uh, of the track maker. Yeah. You know, we see the tracks, we know they're deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, you know, there you go. There's there's something that uh, kind of interesting. So we're talking, uh, what, pounds per square inch in, in the compression of a footprint? Is that I don't what, know. what I'm getting I, at? Yeah, it's, it's something that checks the soil compression mm-hmm. for, uh-huh. for laying pipes. So I would imagine, um, actually, I... You know, there there must be a some sort of a measuring device, and I'm sure it's a yeah, so we'll some sort of civil engineering. 
What's that? So we'll have to look into. And and here's an interesting yeah. point. I think a lot of people sort of gloss over this one when it comes to the Patterson film. Um, you have all these estimates from people at the time and since then that say, oh, the creature was, you know, 300 pounds or 600 pounds or whatever. Patterson did a couple of tests Nick near the tracks at that day. Um, he you know, he was a small guy, but he jumped off a stump, landed next to the track with cowboy boots on. Hardly made an impression. He walked a 1,300-pound horse next to the tracks. The horse did not sink in as deep as the tracks. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say the creature was probably a little bit heavier than the horse because the tracks were an inch right. deep. Yes, and this is time and time and time again when we see tracks and I've seen it even in soil that's kind of rocky so it's not conducive to making a track and here it is in soil that's very rocky and it's three quarters of an inch deep half inch deep it's like okay I'll give you an example of a dramatic set of tracks I found one time and this is I've told a story where uh, Datus Perry took us on one of his endless wild goose chases, but you know, Carlo and I for Portland. Um, this time it wasn't exactly a wild goose chase. He called us, and uh, I remember because it was raining in the spring, and it was just kind of miserable conditions. So we, he had us drive all the way to Carson, and then we got in his old Rambler station wagon. He wanted us to drive us all the way back, almost to Vancouver. <laughs> And he ended up taking us to a spot near the place where I had my second encounter in 1988 with that big gray one. And they were, I remember they were arguing over a mud puddle, the small mud puddle. And one was saying it was a footprint. The other was saying it wasn't, it was a mud puddle. So I got disgusted with both of them. And I walked off just to kind of cool off a little bit because I was kind of upset. And uh, there was a, uh, a pile of gravel. Well, it was kind of a kind of mixed gravel, dirt. But it was hard packed by the county and put it out there apparently part as part of uh, road repair and those logging roads. But um, here was a perfect, well not perfect because it was gravel, but there was a left and a right footprint. And you could tell going up and over this pile. And um, they were 18 inches long, so it was the big gray one that I saw. And that thing had to be, because he with 18 inch tracks, I think it's. It's close to 10 foot, nine and a half feet, something like that, uh, which is consistent with what what I felt when I saw the creature. But um, those tracks were six inches deep into that pile of material. I, you know, I weighed 200 pounds at the time. I didn't, uh, I didn't make a scratch on the pile. So that tells me that thing was extremely heavy that did that. Yeah. And that's uh, that's what we run into all the time. Is uh, they these things consistently make deep, deep, deep impressions where nothing else, not even you know, nothing compares to it. Now sometimes you know in areas, and I guess if you have, you'd have to know for sure that the creature was there. And, you know, a lot of people don't go look for tracks when they see how these sightings. They just, and I understand. You know, I didn't look either until the next day after. Uh, after I saw those things when I was 16, but um, we did find prints, you know, the next day, John and, and his brothers and, and our friend Rick and I went out there and followed them for a long time, but uh, they were mostly in, um, that ground was pretty heavy, so they were in, in the grass, in the, in the uh, frost, but um, 
I, I kind of wonder sometimes if maybe, you know, if, if they go on all fours, they're not going to leave the prints like they would just walking bipedally. Well, that's a good point, yeah. We'd have to talk to maybe Forrest, since she's pretty familiar with, with chimps and other large primates, um, you know, about, you know, for leaving footprints and if the weight distribution is different. And, of course, it's got to be different on all fours than on just two feet. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, last thing here, this gentleman um, talks about, he says, last for now, because I was listening to an older program, and swimming came up. He says they're dense, but he, he mentions that one cubic foot of air will float 52 pounds. So estimating a three-foot wide lung capacity, two-foot high, two-foot front to back, you get 12 cubic feet. He says that would support a 624-pound critter and taking away some of the roundness, uh, 520 pounds. Well, even that, though, with a little body fat, uh, swimming shouldn't be a problem. But that would be a small one, 500 five to six hundred pounds could be sure these things yeah yeah that's uh we have sources that are credible and can't be discussed but these things are well over a thousand pounds well and, and even tom seward when he talked about you know from the native american standpoint they've they've always known they were accomplished swimmers yes and you talked about they swim across the Columbia right. at a specific location. I talked so. to plenty of locals in those areas for years, and it was in certain places it was very matter-of-fact to them. Oh, I didn't know that you spoke directly with the locals. Oh, yeah, I know. That's where I got my information was from the locals. Oh, people, okay, people so you lived, got the eyewitness reports. Yeah, the people who lived along those areas. Oh, oh yeah, I know. It wasn't just wow. stuff dug up somewhere. It was I went out and did the footwork, talked to all the locals. Oh, wow. And they were very, very um, matter-of-fact about it. Well, one of my favorite stories that you talked about um, was one of these creatures jumped into a pond and, or a lake or something, disappeared for about 15 minutes, and then came back. Actually, I think that was something that was related to me. Um, and that was a different part of the country. Because there were, it was an area where there was limestone caves, and they and they felt that they were going under those, into those entrances into uh, subterranean caverns that were, yeah, you know, without water. But I don't know. I mean, you, you'd have to verify that stuff. So, you know, growing up as a kid up here in the Cascades, there was a place where you could jump there was a waterfall that you could jump and i'm telling you when you jumped off that waterfall it was like 1001 1002 yeah and then when you went down in the water it was the same thing you you went so deep that it was 1000 you really wanted to get to the surface well this one guy goes no 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 don't try to go to the surface he said there's a cave under there and we're going to dive down and then we're going to swim into the cave and check it out and I'm like, well, no, we're actually not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we are, we are not. You might, but yeah, we, we are, are not. not. He's like, oh man, this is great. This is a great idea. I'm like, no, this is a bad idea. You go for it. And it just makes me think: Could you imagine going into one of those underwater caves? Come up and hello, 
you got a friend in there, yeah. a hairy friend in there waiting for you. Don't, don't, do you like that when people say we? Oui? It makes me wonder. It's like, okay, are you speaking French or is there a mouse in your pocket? What are you talking about here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's this we stuff? <laughs> yeah, it was, there was the three of us and my friend, you know, this one guy's, no, come on, man, we're going to do it. And it was a total mutiny. It's like, nope, <laughs> we're not going to do this. It's like, I've done stupid yeah. things, but I'm not doing that stupid thing. <laughs> no, no, that was, that, that was just totally... got ugly written all over it. Yeah. It's one of those things you come back saying, yeah, I'm not coming back from that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> well, and and actually the Forest Service or somebody that came in, I don't know, somebody came in and actually dynamited the cave because every year you'd read about somebody that went into the cave and then discovered Oh, oops! There's not there's insufficient air in there, and yeah. Plus, it's got to be dark. I mean, there's no light whatsoever, and you'd be right. dis- disoriented and just not a good move. Why? Yeah. Why? No. <laughs> the answer was no. <laughs> That's right. That would be on my top of my list. Let's just say yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. oh, what was it, Nan? There wouldn't even be a why in there. What, what was it? Nancy oh, Reagan. No. Nancy Reagan used to say, "Just say no." Just say no. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm on board with that. Just say no. Hundred <laughs> percent. And it's easier to. It's there's fewer, um, fewer letters than yes. So yeah. it's no. It's easier to say, <laughs> it's right? One less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It should be easier to say, right? I would say it. <laughs> or actually, I would have that little silly quizzical. Are you kidding me? I'm <laughs> well, this this is one of those guys, and there's one in every group. You guys know what I'm talking about. Hey, man, we're going to go do this. I'm like, hey, man, we're not going to go do this. Right. <laughs> yeah. He just wants to see if other people would follow him. That's like, you know, it's kind of like I think that's where Will is coming up with. Oh, Milo, we could go out here, and you could go be the bait shirt. <laughs> Oh, no, Milo's not. You're <laughs> <laughs> going to have to get another recruit there, Will. I mean, I'm going, but... <laughs> what are you saying, Milo? <laughs> what am I saying? Is I'm going to be in the middle. Are, are you saying Are you saying no? <laughs> is, is that it? <laughs> we, just, we, just, we just covered this now. <laughs> yeah, well, no is no. No means no. So no, it doesn't mean maybe. So, it doesn't mean. So no means yes. That's what you're saying. Man, dude, leave me alone. <laughs> okay, let's move on. <laughs> well, we we got about ten minutes left, fellas. We got any more questions, or should we take a look at um, the comments? Comments. Well, let's cause yeah, let's take a make, look at the comments. But yeah. actually, will I am going to ask a question, and this is one that comes up from time to time. So I'm just going to uh, tackle it. That is, why do people report that these things, their eyes, are almost luminescent? They're just, and this is one of the things that people find so unnerving, disturbing about when, for those who see that, it's, it seems to be a little more than just eye shine. Do you think it's, I am, you know, maybe we need somebody who's an eye doctor who can talk about yeah, their it's, reflectivity. It's, it's, it's got to be some kind of eye shine, 
some kind of something from a there has to be an external source there's no internal source lighting up their eyeballs there's no mammal right that would be about as useful as yeah having ears that have their own audio source yeah you're you're not going to walk around with flashlights built into your head (laughs) you know what i mean right right yeah so i mean but it is i you know i just find it fascinating uh well now milo what you saw, di- didn't you see the eye shine, the kind of glowing, or not glowing, but I'll just say reflecting eyes? Or... Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I was looking. Well, the fire was when right I behind saw... you, so it would have lighted up yeah. the entire area. I mean, we had it, but... we had it build up. It was bright. Yeah, it was totally bright. And and the thing, it wasn't really the eyes as much as it was the shape overshadowing or standing high above an eight-foot friggin' tent. Okay, so you saw a silhouette or the, the, you saw yeah. the shape of the creature. Ah, okay, okay. So, you know, when, you know, I, and, and then subconsciously, I'm, and I'm talking now, is like you could probably sense where the eyes were, but all I saw was just this gigantic, over, you know, bearing. I mean, this shape was like massive standing over the tent well and if you think about it as bright as that fire was and that was the whole point of having the fire build up like that so we had plenty of light around us the visibility portion right and and we're only talking from the fire to where milo saw that less than 10 feet so even just the wetness of the eyes would have reflected light from the fire and so he you would have seen that at least some of that yeah yeah, and and so that was kind of a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday moment, right? Well, life? it was, yeah, it, it was like... That was an oh crap moment. No, no bait shirt, yeah, it was the bait shirt moment. It was a bait know? shirt it moment. Really was. It was a bait shirt moment. So when I, uh, I won, I, it terrified me. I swear to God, that was like, I, I was like pulling on will i know i was oh. you know i was like <laughs> I, I think milo got two two feet of air under him when he jumped and yelled <laughs> <laughs> and that's not far from the truth either really pretty close you know pretty close yeah because i mean that was probably my first real camping thing you know yeah what an experience I, for I, the first time out in the woods huh yeah i was like totally man i I was totally sold by then, you know, and, and it didn't take much, you know, I was like, and then all of a sudden you go out there and see something like that. You know, we had no idea what, what we were getting into going out there. No. Well, look at what we packed to go in there. <laughs> yeah, right. A, a half working flashlight. Are you serious? One, well, that was always our, our standard issue was the half working flashlight. <laughs> one, just one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't even go out of my house now without like four. Well, you know, I, you know I, that I was think... my. Go ahead, Tom. There, there's well, something you... about a half working flashlight because that was my very, very first experience, Will, when I first <laughs> contacted you. You know, I was I driving down a snowy mountain, just got below the snow line. We got to take the chains off, and it's dark and it's cold. And what do I have? I've got a funky little you've got the headlamp that we're trading back and forth. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think these things are attracted to half-working flashlights. People today think you know they have so much stuff, and we're talking mm-hmm. back in the mid '70s, 
And we just, I don't know, Milo, I know you guys didn't. We didn't have a whole lot of stuff like that. We just didn't. And Mm -mm. we just kind of grabbed whatever we thought we needed. No, you're talking out of your own home, though, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I know my. And I was less prepared than you because I came from Long Beach, California. So what does that tell you? Well, I didn't go camping. I mean, well, I did with our our family friend Charlie, but it was always stuff he had. You know, I didn't have anything, and my parents, and I know they had flashlights, but, you know, I wasn't touching my parents' stuff to take out there. That's, I mean, I, I'm sure I could have asked them, but I just, it just didn't feel right to do that. Uh, and we didn't think about it. We didn't think about, oh, we're going to be out there all night. Maybe something's going to come around us. It just never occurred to a bunch <laughs> of teenagers that, hey, this might happen. Uh, I think we did, yeah. we did take the one, I can't remember who brought that. I mean, heck, it might have been Paul who brought the flashlight. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, we... Yeah, I would say it was Paul. We didn't have a lot of stuff. Well, just blame it on... Yeah. Yeah. I'd blame it on Paul. But it was his tent, and... Uh, yeah. It was a tent we took a few times. We never used it except to put stuff in it. I think he's the only one that actually slept in it. Oh, no, we did. I think we did sleep in it at Mount St. Helens. Oh, okay, that was Mount St. Helens. That wasn't Clark's Ranch. Right. I mean, right. I, I don't think I ever stepped foot in it other than when we put it up. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, I was terrified. After I seen that, I didn't sleep the rest of I Hell, oh. I never went to sleep at all. None of us slept the rest of that night until we all passed out oh. around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning <laughs> from exhaustion. Yeah. Well, fellas, you know, for some strange reason, the Clarks made it crystal clear. We're not, you guys get in trouble, you're on your own, we're not coming out after you. Yeah, Yeah, no screams, you know, if you scream, don't accept back, no help. You know, they must have seen things or something that, where they they had a pretty good idea what was out there, because they said, you know, you guys can go out there, we're not going. (laughs) What, how far... Were they well from your house, roughly, was the Clark Ranch? Oh, it was clear over in the, by the town of Roy. That was, uh, shoot, like a 45-minute drive away. Now, is that, and when I say your house, from the area that you saw the two underneath the tree? Different, different groups of creatures. Yeah, okay. The ones, the ones that I saw would come down the Puyallup and Carbon Rivers. Um, these were clear over on the Nisqually on the other side of Fort Lewis. Oh. So it was, it was, it was a ways away. Okay. Well, fellas, that's interesting. Cause the Nisqually river, I'll have to double check. But we, I have a nephew that lives up there. Yeah. There was, yeah, I told you about that. Him and his buddy found a pile of there, elk bones out in the middle of nowhere. There was a lot of activity over in that area. Well, listen, fellas, we're just about out of time. Um, folks, we will go and talk about and address the comments next week. Uh, sorry about that. We sort of ran out of time, but uh, we'll do that. And because uh, we like we like everybody's participation, we like to acknowledge our listeners. So we'll do that next week, fellas. Any last comments or thoughts? No, I'm good. I, other than I'm not being no bait shirt guy. We'll discuss that. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I want to, I just want to say thank you to everybody. And the questions that came in are just excellent. So if you have questions, you can throw them in the comments. Also, shoot us an email, questions at creekdevil.com. 
either one we'll get to them and i would love to hear from you guys absolutely all right folks stay tuned for the next segment because we ran long in the first segment we're only going to do a couple of short stories for the third part but uh anyway stay tuned for that folks and hope you enjoy it in bigfoot history northwest territories summer 1952 Murray Lloyd of Yakima wrote to Roger Patterson that while in camp one evening he saw a creature about nine feet tall and quite heavy standing by some blackberries about 75 feet away watching him. After a few minutes it walked away. Roger's notes give no location. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of this story, Clue to Gorilla Men Found May Be Lost Race of Giants, July 16, 1924. The Siotic, Siotko, and other spelling variations. Clallam Indians tell of eight-foot Siatics who killed game by hypnotism, existence kept secret by other tribes. Hoquiam, Washington. Mountain devils discovered at Mount St. Helens near Kelso are none other than the Siatic tribe, said George Totsky, Clallam tribe editor of The Real American, an Indian National Weekly publication in an interview here today. Siatic is a Clallam pronunciation. All other tribes pronounce it Siatko. The Indians of the Northwest have kept the existence of the Siatics a secret, partly because they know no white man would believe them, and the Indian, known for his honesty and truthfulness, does not like to be called a liar, and partly because the Northwestern Indian is ashamed of the Siatic tribe, said Totsky. The mountain devils or gorillas who bombarded the prospector's shack on Mount St. Helens in 1924, according to the description of the miners, are none other than the Siatic tribe, with whom every Indian in the Northwest is familiar, said Totsky. Were thought to be extinct. The Siatics were last heard of by the Clallam Indians about 15 years ago, approximately 1899 to 1909. And it was believed by the present-day Indians that they had become extinct. The Siatic tribe also made their home in caves, in the heart of the wilderness on Vancouver Island, and in the Olympic Range, in particular Mount St. Helens. As described by the Clallam Indians, the Siatics are seven to eight feet tall. They have hairy bodies like the bear. They are great hypnotists and kill their game by stunning them with hypnotic power. They also have a gift of ventriloquism, throwing their voices at great distances and can imitate any bird in the Northwest. They have a very keen sense of humor, Totsky added. In the past generations, they stole many Indian women and Indian babies. They lived entirely in the mountain, coming down to the shores only when they wanted a change of diet. The Quinaults claimed that they generally came once a year to the Quinault River, about fall. 
The Clallams say they favored the river area near Brennan on Hood Canal. After having their fill of fresh salmon, they stole dried salmon from the Indian women. The Seatic tribe are harmless if left alone. The Clallam tribe, however, at one time several generations ago, killed a young man of the Seatic tribe to their everlasting sorrow, for they killed off a whole branch of the Clallam tribe but one, and he was merely left to tell the tale to the other Clallams up sound. The Clallam Indians believed that the Seatic tribe had become extinct. It is fifteen years since their tracks were last seen and recognized at the Brennan River. Prior to that time, many Clallam Indians have met and talked with men of this strange tribe, for the Seatics talk the strange tongue of the Clallams, which is said to have originated from the bear tongue. The Quinault Indians, however, claim that Fred Pope of the Quinault tribe and George Hyasman of the Satsup tribe were fishing about fifteen miles up the Quinault River in the month of September four years ago, 1920, when they were visited by the Seatics. The two Indians had caught a lot of steelhead trout, which they had left in their canoe, and the Seatics stole these. Henry Napoleon of the Clallam tribe is the only Indian who has ever been invited to the home of the Seatic tribe. It was while Napoleon was visiting relatives on the British Columbia coast about thirty years ago, that would have made the year roughly 1895, that he met a Seatic while hunting. The giant Indian then invited him to their home, which is in the very heart of the wilderness of Vancouver Island. Napoleon claims that they live in a large cave. He was treated with every courtesy and told some of their secrets. He claims that the giant Indians made themselves invisible by strange medicine that they rub over their bodies, and that they were able to cause great fear by hypnotic power, and had the gift of ventriloquism, to mimic the owl and throw their voices. Some Indians claim that during the process of evolution, when the Indian was changing from animal to man, the Seatic did not fully absorb the Tamanois, or soul power, and thus he became an anomaly in the process of evolution. The Indians of the Northwest are of the belief that the mountain devils found at Mount St. Helens are indeed the Seatic Indians, and it is generally their custom to frighten persons who have displeased them by throwing rocks at them. This is the end of the story. Thank you for listening. The Dena people liked him, Tex Cobb. No sentiment was wasted on either side, but he and the tribesmen had a live-and-let-live understanding that was rare in those days. He stayed off their trap lines, and they stayed off his. If an Indian had a salmon net in an eddy, Texas found another eddy, and vice versa. Due to the fact that the Indians trusted him, we became involved with what today would be called, I suppose, an abominable snowman. I have since heard and read a great deal about the abominable snowman. I have seen the photographs of those tracks in the snow on a Tibetan mountain, and to me they are simply the tracks of a man with gunny sack or some cloth wrapped around his feet as protection from the cold, climbing slewfoot because the slope was steep and he had no crampons. But when I was a youngster roaming the north with Tex, we had never heard of the abominable snowman. 
We had, however, heard much about Gilyuk, the shaggy cannibal giant, sometimes called the big man with a little hat. Our adventure with Gilyuk occurred while we were camped in a pretty spruce park on Yellow Jacket Creek, south of Tyrone Lake. We had spent the entire summer on this mountain, Gert Nelchina Plateau, wandering about in aimless nomad fashion. Tex said we were prospecting and looking for fur sign. Maybe we were. He always had to have an excuse for enjoying the country. A commercial excuse, if he could think of one. Anyway, it was now late September, the beautiful time. No mosquitoes. The land ablaze with color. The fish and the meat animals, summer fat. The caribou horde gathering. And we were footloose and free, as perhaps men can never be again. This morning, Tex was making coffee, and I was down at the creek clearing a mess of grayling for breakfast, when six Indians filed through the timber. They stood for a moment, solemnly regarding our four horses. To them, a horse was a rarity, a mysterious animal. They called them McKinley Moose, because McKinley was the only president they had ever heard of, and the horses were as big as moose. I followed them to the camp. "'Have you eaten?' Tex asked them in Denna. They said they had eaten. Chief Stickman was with them. I had seen him once before, at Eklinta Village. A squat, square-faced man, very dark, with long hair and quick-moving obsidian eyes. He was the Denna boss of this entire area, and his reputation was bad. But now he had trouble that he couldn't handle. He told us about it, and as he talked, he kept standing first on one leg, then the other, balancing himself with the moccasined sole of the free foot against the knee of the supporting leg. I don't know whether it was habit or a medicine trick to ward off evil spirits or both, but it was disconcerting. He had come into this area two days ago, he said, with some of his people to kill and cache caribou for winter use. But they had discovered that Gilyuk, the shaggy giant, was hanging around. They found his sign yesterday, and of course, everybody knew that Gilyuk wasn't interested in caribou. Gilyuk ate men. What kind of sign, Tex asked. We will take you to see it, Stickman said. It's not far. After breakfast, we followed the Indians upstream a couple of miles to a burned flat on which a nurse crop of aspen and birch had grown. In the center of the flat stood a ruined birch sapling. It had been about four inches through and maybe ten feet tall. Something had twisted the sapling, as a man would twist a matchstick. The wood had separated into individual fibers. The bark hung in tatters. Stickman and his hunters stood back, while Tex and I looked the sight over. Moose often ride a sapling down to get at the tender upper twigs. So do caribou. But no moose or caribou had done this. This had been done by something with hands. It had happened yesterday, because the leaves of the sapling had not yet completely wilted. It wasn't the work of lightning. No burns. A freak whirlwind hadn't done it, because trees and brush a few yards distant were undamaged. The hard ground showed no tracks. We found no snagged hair on the brush. Absolutely nothing, except the incredibly twisted birch sapling. It was without question, the eeriest sight I have ever beheld in the wilds. Stickman said, It is Gilyuk's mark. We have seen it before. I wish to make clear 
that to the Dena people, Gilyuk was no legendary creature their grandfathers had told them about. He was a reality, and they spoke of him as they spoke of bears and wolves. They saw his sign, and they saw him. He was a shaggy giant who wore a little hat and ate men. We want to ask you to camp with us until we have killed our caribou, Stickman said. Gilyuk doesn't molest white men. Perhaps he will not molest us if you are in the camp. Stickman had already told us that he was bivouacked on the shore of a pothole lake two hours to the eastward. Tex said all right, we would move to his camp in the morning. As he was still looking at the twisted sapling, his green eyes narrowed in thought. I couldn't take my gaze off of it either. Stickman said, Thanks, Kosaki, a strange word of respect held over from the old Russian Cossack, and we parted company with the Indians. Next morning, I brought the horses in at daybreak. We ate, broke camp, and were putting on the packs when here came the Indians, all of them. All, that is, except Stickman. An old man told us Stickman was dead. Gilyuk had taken him. The chief had got up in the night and gone down to the lake, perhaps for water, but nobody knew. A squaw with a birch bark torch found his red flannel underwear on the gravel beach. It had been torn off of him. There may have been tracks, but the entire hunting party had swarmed over the beach, and by daylight no tracker on earth could have made sense of the jumble. Well, until the day of his own death last July, while on a sentimental journey to a fateful spot in Cook Inlet, Tex was convinced that the cannibal giant Gilyuk killed Stickman. When asked if he believed in the existence of abominable snowmen, Tex would reply that he didn't think there were any around in Alaska nowadays, but that they had existed, at least one of them, a couple of decades back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com that's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open up.